This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm an S, Stella, ad hoc S, <laughs> Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 213 for November MMXXI. You're the only one. I do that every time, but you're the only one who appreciates it. I Back do. Roll- I do appreciate it. <laughs> Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comic Express, offering a discounted price for comics right to the shelves. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. It's November. It's not Halloween. This guy isn't dressing up. He really is a priest. This is my former work husband, my ex-work husband of eight years. Taught Latin with me. And a priest, an Anglican priest. 
So That's also my, true. This will be my first priest and maybe my only one. But is my dear friend, Father Sean McDermott, to come on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Oh, this is probably one of the best and highest honors that I have ever <laughs> received. The other one was was talking at that the the our the school that we used to teach at the uh, the student retreat, which they asked oh, me yes. back to. It's like, oh man, highest honors, and now I get to come on this. And by the way, happy birthday month. Thank you so much for remembering. We, share it. Yes. we do share it. Yeah, we're just seven days off, remember. aren't we? You didn't that's, remember. That's a lie. Mine. Aren't we seven days off from each other? Yep. 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 You're seven days older than I am. Yeah. Can you believe it? Oh man. You know, you are not far from my mind. I've played Kiss Mary Kill with other people many times, and you often are one of the rounds. And you've only been killed off once. Alana Speth is the only person who's killed you off. <laughs> Everyone she knows else. better than to marry a priest. <laughs> I feel like the priest should always get killed off. Like that's our, that's our role. That's interesting. She'd always get killed. I mean, yeah, it's go for sacrifice. it. Sacrifice. Yeah. Oh, then we get to be martyrs. It's even better in our little narcissistic <laughs> complexes. This is great. Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> welcome. So we have Latin in common. We have Roman history in common. And this is the main reason why I wanted you to come on here. But also, I thought it'd be fun. You were a little bit nervous, but I said, you know, Heath Barr, Sam Heath was on here twice. He survived. So I feel like I've got good, good faith in you. All right. I I would love, though, for the people who actually listen to this mm-hmm. um, to tell me if I'm better than Heath Barr. Oh, in the end. Yes. You know, I want to I don't want to just do it. I want to do it better. OK. Better than him. OK. Well, I've set you up with an interesting story, and I'm also going to yeah. set you up with some controversial images and a topic at the beginning about a priest <laughs> that Donovan and I encountered a long time ago. Where so Where is that. this? Where is it from? It's from Batgirl, so the same comic that we're reading, but way back, issue 15 in 2000. And we're reading, oh. what, 30, 31, 32? So, yeah, yeah, a couple, yeah, a year and a half ago or prior to this, so... What is your comic history? <laughs> Do you have any <laughs> history with comics? Look at this. Or even, you know, television. Well, I just want to set the groundwork. I know, but you're just laughing at me before <laughs> even starting. It's like, oh, you're a comic virgin. Oh, oh no. Um, no, I actually do have a comic background, which I don't think you know about. <gasps> Uh, when I was in middle school, and then I think it went in maybe ninth grade, maybe I got obsessed with this comic called Gru, G R O O. Yes. And it was like um, I could never afford asterisks. And so it was like the cheap asterisks. And that's what I got into. I, I even went to comic book shops and I would buy them. So I have something, I, I have a groundwork and I loved it. And I don't know what happened to them. I think my mom probably threw them away. What if they're worth? What if they were worth a great deal? Does anyone read them anymore? Anyone? Gru? I think Gru's still around. Still going? I think so. Oh, that's so cool. That's not in my wheelhouse, but I believe so. (laughs) Well, see, I have something there. That's good. You've got to step up on me. Yeah. Okay, cool. You could have filled many coffers with that had you sold that collection. Yeah, well, it wasn't that big, but yes, that was my that is my only real comic. Oh, and I will say, uh, right now in my house, which is filled because I have three young boys and one little girl, filled with Tintins, okay. and now we get asterisks from the library because they're still too expensive, but um, we get them from the library, and so that's my that's my comic background now. Okay, 
any DC, films? Marvel, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Before we started recording Friends, he said, you know, what do I need to know about Batgirl and Marvel? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> that was just to get you going. I know, I know. I know. Uh, movies, I know. No. Okay. No. I just want to set the stage. So okay. basically, listeners, what I'm doing to him is what Professor Allen did to me way back when, when he brought me on to just look at one random issue from a series I've never read. So that's what we're doing here. Before we even get into that, though, let us do our Find Your Joy segment, which is also known as Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. So we've had some tough like times, that. of course, but uh, we tried to rise above it. So what sorts of things have you and maybe you and your family been doing that have kept you joyful in these tough times? Uh, I would say for me, the in the past year, it's been bike riding. A lot of bike riding and one of my best bike rides, I was going through town and I ran, you know, I was riding down and I saw this little girl running up the sidewalk. <laughs> it's like, that's not a little girl, that's Stella, you know? So, and I got to run into Stella, which yeah. was incredible. Um, so my project this summer, well, and then in previous a little bit of time was to ride every single street in Charlottesville. Oh, wow. And so I got printed out a map and every morning I would go out, you had to do it. I had to do it 530 to 6.30, only one hour rides. And you have to start at my house and leave and go ride as much as you can and then come back. And so there's a lot of, you know, like re, you know, riding the same roads and back and forth, but I finished it just a few weeks ago. And so my map now is all black, you know, wow. all the roads now I got to mark out and I've ridden every single road in Charlottesville. So, so it was a real blessing then that we ran into each other because any other day you could have been, I would have been else. across town. Totally. Yeah. Right. Did you ever get lost? In this journey? Yes. Okay. Yes. Even in, and our town's not that big, right? Like yeah. it's not, um, but it does have a lot of twisty roads. And then I even found a road that you can't drive on and that it's not even paved. It's, it's steps down into a grass yard. Oh, interesting. And it's an official road on our map. Official road. So what did you do? Official. You picked well, up I, your bike I was on a bike, so I just rode it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I, I, you know, <laughs> stepped down the stairs and then I, I rode the, the grass and kept going. It was great. Oh my gosh. Well, that's cool super exciting. That's like a really inventive thing that I've not heard of anyone doing, but definitely a way to get to know your city better. Yeah. It was really fun. It was great. Very cool. So I went to New York city the end of October and hung out with Claire. Whoa. Yes, Whoa. Little, yeah. So she is a grad student now at Columbia. Yeah. Right. So we hung out, we reminisced of course about you and we went to see the musical Six, which is about Henry VIII's six wives. Oh, cool. It's like in the format of this really explosive concert, high energy the entire time. It was really great. Whoa, I got to see that. Yeah. Or just listen to the soundtrack, which is easy to find on, on Spotify, and you'll get a good sense of what that is. Uh, I love that the fall temperatures are finally fall-like. You know, and Except chilly. today. Except for yeah. today. Yeah, this week. 75. Been and... Yeah, that's been bizarre. NCAA women's soccer tournament is starting up. Maybe First round, you got UVA won, right? First round is on Friday. Oh, okay. Not, that was yeah. the other. That was, yeah. that was the last game. So yeah. here's hoping. And then, of course, as you said, it's our B-Day month. So it's always. It's our. I know. It's the best. I know. Yeah. I do a nice little countdown until we get to it. Do, you do your listeners send you gifts? <laughs> I've gotten gifts from people, but no. Okay, good. Because I will tell you, having worked with Stella for a long time, <laughs> uh, she was always really jealous that all the students gave me gifts oh because I would announce, gosh. I would like basically make this mandatory in my classes. So Stella loves gifts. <laughs> Send them to her. <laughs> Send her a gift. She loves them. Uh, November there 21st. Used to, there used to be a pretty 
bad competition, wasn't there when it, the holidays came around? Like who got the most gifts yeah, from usually, students? I usually lost that one actually. But. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Probably. Mary I don't think. Ann. I don't think parents liked me. I think oh, students, students did. But that's interesting, though. They could care less about Latin, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is. Yep. Yes, it's, it's a true. love relationship. Okay, so before we get into our story, if listeners remember way back when there was an a an issue of Barbara Gordon, I don't even know which picture I should use. There was an issue of I said Barbara Gordon of Cassandra Kane Backerel, where this man develops a ray gun of some sort and is experimenting on different people to see how long it would take them to kill basically. So he puts them in some sort of scenario. You can't tell what the scenario is. You just have the outcome of someone or multiple people are dead. And he experimented with a soldier, a priest and Cassandra, and each of them had varying degrees. So I remember when I was doing this with Donovan, I actually wondered about the priest. The priest took an hour. That's how long the scenario around and uh, went in his head before he actually killed. And he killed multiple people. I think the soldier was maybe like 15 minutes and then Cassandra was like a matter of seconds, which was the whole point of the story. But no, no, the soldier, the soldier was, uh, was an hour. Oh, how the, long was no, the no, 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 the soldier, the soldier was hours. Oh. The priest was one hour oh. and then Cassandra was a heartbeat. A heartbeat. Okay. Thank you. You have that. Great feature. line. Well, that's line. actually, that is even worse because I would imagine the soldier would be a less amount of time just because they're, they're not killing machines, but they're just used to those sorts of scenarios. I, I think that was the point. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was throwing the priest <laughs> on the bus a little bit there, but at the same time so, we think about death a lot. So yeah, I guess I that's know. true. So I don't even know what sorts of questions, cause I don't want to put you on the spot on the spot, but I did want to like, what are your thoughts on this? Would oh, there be yeah. any realistic scenarios <laughs> that you could see this happening as an hour realistic? I don't know. So I guess I am putting you on the spot. And then, of course, uh, I know you have some things to say about his vestments as well. Oh, which man, I know. this yeah. is just so good. Um, <laughs> I would love to find these vestments. I'll tell you that um, they are really styling. Um and of course, there are awful, evil priests out there in the world. So no, I, I, you know, of course you can find a priest who would kill within an hour. You would kill in a minute. I think the more important thing though, is actually how, how they write the, the, the guy, is it a doctor who's sending this laser beam? He's some sort of mad scientist. Yeah. So this mad scientist, when he does it, I don't have it up, but if I can remember it correctly, uh, what's going on is that he has this, um, laser, which affects the frontal cortex, as he says, and then back row, like whops in the head and says, speak English. And then, um, he says, oh, it makes you, it, it determines your will to murder. And what he's interesting then is how they qualify it. How do they, how do they, um, make it right in their mind? Well, the only problem with that in within like uh, traditional Catholic theology is that if someone actually did have the power, that's it. Thank you, Stella. You're welcome. Yeah, he says it makes you kill, makes you decide to kill. Okay, that means that he has taken over your will. And at that point, justification of it is then not really responsible. The person's not responsible mm. if their will has already been taken over. And then if their will is taken over, they're not responsible for it. It's ridiculous. 
And so in, a, in some sense, like, yeah, of course people would kill if you take over the will and it makes you decide to kill. It's a little nonsensical, though, at that point, because within, uh, within Catholic theology, the moral component of the murder has been taken away. There's no culpability anymore if this mad scientist has made you decide to kill. Hmm. And so in some ways then, okay, I think the other point was then he said like, you know, the priest used religion as a means of murder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people use all sorts of things for murder. I mean, they, you know, like you hear these stories about people who have road rage and kill because someone stopped at a light too soon. Uh, and of course he can use religion uh, to kill. People have done it throughout all of history. It's awful, but it happens. And so this priest can do it. Yeah. But if the priest actually decided to do that and had a, had a will and intentionally murdered for religion, that would be considered a mortal sin. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wouldn't be, uh, he, he would be damned for that in a sense, you know, he could still be forgiven, but he would be judged for that sin. That's awful. But in this sense, the guy's taking over his mind. So he's not really culpable in that sense. Yeah. Can we talk about his vestments though? Yes. They're yeah. awesome. It's like a bathrobe with crosses on it and it looks at <laughs> me and then has like these cool, uh, um, these cool other like elbow patches things. And then he's wearing a yeah. pectoral cross, which by the way, Stella, only bishops wear pectoral crosses or they're only allowed to. So like now you Chad? have like, yeah, exactly. So now you have like this, this bishop guy maybe maybe is a canon maybe that's like a special canon a roman catholic canon which is a special title that you can get but it is bizarre i love his revolver and i love that he still blesses their soul when he know. you know shoots this massive gun in their face but not realistic sorry okay sounds good <laughs> do you think this just goes to show that religion overall is not portrayed well in other forms of media do you think that's just like oh it's just another thing yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's just like a really easy trope to play with and it's fun to play with. I would just wish that people would take have more fun with it, which would mm. mean like do it right, you know? There's lots of things you should make fun of in religion and do it. And <laughs> I, we shouldn't be like scared of that sort of thing. That's kind of what is like the nice challenge. Yeah. But do it well. Come on. Don't yeah. But if anyone can find that vestment, I would love to wear that. That would be fun. Oh my gosh! Probably a Halloween costume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what someone said. I was I was buying something at the store a couple of days ago, and the checkout person was like, "Well, I I really like your costume." Oh no. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Oh geez. Wait, I don't you even think she knew. Them. No, I mean I don't even think she knew what it was. Oh, interesting. She was more like saying like I like your style, like, and I didn't really get that. It's like it's not a. I don't know. Were you actually out and about before Halloween? No, it wasn't even on Halloween. It was just a random day. It huh. was recently. Yeah. Well, I guess Halloween's been recent too, but. Interesting. Well. Wow. Strange things yeah. as a priest. That's not my thinking. You know, whenever I see people in the really long garbs that always remind me of the Matrix. I think yeah, Cassocks. Yeah. Yeah. I see them out and about sometimes in the hospital, but yep. I've yet to go up to anyone and say, do you know Father Sean? <laughs> You might see me in my cassock. That would be, uh, yeah. I'm sorry I didn't wear it tonight. That's okay. The collar, I think, makes it. For sure. Well, you see, it, yeah, it's still in the cassock, but yeah. I think, yeah. Anyways. So everyone, I hope everyone believes that you're an actual priest on this show. <laughs>
I told someone I was having a priest on. He's like, why are you doing that? And I said, oh, you'll find out. <laughs> yeah. So I can't give absolutions through the screen. That would be so crazy. Nothing well, else. That would be you, crazy, right? Could you though? No. During COVID? Not even during COVID. So no. there weren't extreme situations? You can't do it virtually. No. The extreme wow. situation would be an extreme grace of God because God can act extraordinarily, yes. but he's not going to... He's not going to take the ordinary act, which is uh, being in the same physical place as a priest to receive absolution and then change it into like virtual stuff or like send the precious blood of Christ through the computer. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, but there are some weird things going on during COVID tide. I mean, it was. Yeah, there was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then just for Sean, I wore a shirt that he had created, which has a goat on it. Yes. Yes. Like he then, says. Does Reed that one glow in the dark like our donut one? This one did not glow in the dark. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We made that donut one that glowed in the dark. Yes. That was awesome. I wear that sometimes in the hospital. And so when I go into <laughs> patients' rooms and it's like really dark, I wonder what they think of like, there's this orb floating towards me. <laughs> Hopefully it's not like a de- uh, someone with dementia that's like really concerned, but yeah. yeah. Oh boy. Okay. I think that's it for our warm up. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, let's hit this. Okay. So we're doing an arc of back row. It's going to be 30, 31 and 32. And I think everyone will quickly realize why Sean is on. I've already said, because there's lots of Roman stuff and we're going to pull it apart. We're going to be those people where we kind of look at the history as much as we can. Look at the we're history. We're going to nerd out. Yeah. yeah. And see whether Chuck Dixon did an admirable job or not. Okay. So I'm going to give the synopses for all three of them, and then we'll dive into the, the different issues. So back roll number 30, subtitle Legion of the Lost, September 2002 cover date, writer Chuck Dixon, pencil Damian Scott, inker Klaus Jansen, colorist Jason Wright, and digital chameleon. Three days ago in Ivy Town, billionaire financier Bartram Fletcher was killed by three arrows. Oracle and Backroll watch a video of the murder, and Backroll identifies the unknown killer as an assassin, though she is not sure whether it was a murder or a message. She suits up to investigate as a second man wearing a ring with the insignia of the lost ninth legion. There you go. Of Rome is killed by three arrows. She comes across Connor Hawk, who she believes is the killer because he has a bow. He tries to convince her that he is on the trail of the murder cult, too, but she fights him and only stops when Eddie fires punches her. Batgirl pretends to be unconscious as the men talk their private conversation, proving the truth of Connor's claims. And she says she will help them. A member of the Ninth Legion reports to Agrippina, unknown whether it's elder or younger, that he was followed by two men. She declares that they will kill them. This goes to Backroll 31, the Cataphracts, which we'll talk about as well. October 2002 cover date, writer Chuck Dixon, Pencil Damian Scott, inker Wade Vaughn, Graw Badger, and then colorist Jason Wright and Digital Chameleon. Using a pizza van and delivery man disguise, members of the Ninth Legion go around Gotham City, killing off members. Jack Drake, however, is not at home, and they move on to the next target while Batgirl takes Connor Hawk and Eddie fires to her Batcave. She contacts Batman, who intimidates Eddie into giving up his guns, which Batgirl throws out. He identifies the rings each victim was wearing as a symbol of the Ninth Legion, a social club dating back to the time of the Caesars. (laughs) Batman (laughs) faxes them 
a list of the five members who live in Gotham, one of whom is Bruce Wayne. Another is Jack Drake, who is attending a ceremony in his honor with his wife, Dana, his son, Tim, and Tim's girlfriend, Stephanie. Eddie pretends to be an employee to bring Jack backstage, but really he steals his clothes and goes on stage pretending to be him, which is when the Ninth Legion attacks. Rather than killing Eddie, the Legion kidnaps Drake and drives off with him. Jack is found in his underwear in a supply closet and Batgirl and Green Arrow are joined on the case by Robin and Spoiler. And then the climax is Batgirl 32, Moratori, November 2002 cover date. Yeah, deponent infinitive. It's great. (laughs) Just throwing it out there. Writer Chuck Dixon, Pets for Damien Scott, Inker Wade Vaughn, Graw Badger, Colors Jason Wright, Digital Chameleon. Batgirl, Connor Hawk, Robin, and Spoiler track the Ninth Legion down to Jupiter Plaza. Tim calls his father. Jack tells him that a supposed Claudian descendant has been sending threats to the Ninth Legion, demanding to know where the Eagle the Ninth is. Agrippina has Eddie Fires, whom she believes is Jack Drake tied down on a cross and she threatens to crucify him unless he tells her where the eagle is Eddie refuses and they lift the cross agrippina believes that with the magical powers of the eagle she can restore the roman empire that's what i'm trying to do all the time yeah. green just without the crucifixion uh green arrow shoots eddie free and a fight breaks out between the four superheroes and agrippina's ninth legion agrippina's electric weapons starts a fire in the building and everyone runs to safety except her Batgirl wants to save Agrippina, who happens to be playing a liar at the time, but Robin stops her. Batgirl reports to Batman that she did not see Agrippina die and cannot be sure that she did. She asks him whether the eagle is real, and he confirms that it is and that Jack Drake has it in a closet at his house. In a golf club set. I know. Oh, dear. Okay. So we shall start off. I like to go through the covers. And show the covers and talk about that a bit so we can get into, we can see what your art background is like. <laughs> My art background? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm just kidding. But it's, no, it's, this yeah, is. Yeah. Go on. Go on. Now, while you're looking for it. Yep. Chuck. Chuck Dixon? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, why could he be including okay. Roman history on this? Like, what's Chuck's why background? Yeah. <laughs> Like, what do you know about Chuck a, that what? would allow this? <laughs> it's funny how you say that. You've surely I, met him, right? Oh, I have met him and I've interviewed him a couple of times as well. I don't think he has a classics background. So okay. I think this is just a fun idea that he's coming up with. It's an offshoot story before we get back into heavier tales with Batgirl. I don't. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, he thought of something fun that he wanted to do. Now, he does not. He's a pretty prolific Batman writer. At this time, he's writing Nightwing and Robin. His time on Birds of Prey just ended. So him being on Batgirl is a little strange. We just got off of a long run with the original writer. So there are also some weird stuff that, well, there's one scene in particular that doesn't make sense, given what the previous writer did with Batgirl here but otherwise oh, he, he doesn't really have the expertise I would say unless I so I don't know him personally personally but I could ask him like hey do you know Roman history but this is potentially just what you could get from googling but we'll see oh yeah but I just I love it like I love that yeah. he's bringing this in I'm just kind of wondering his background or like if he come from? um yeah. or he just read as a child the the novel where this did, did come from really but yeah anyways 
we it yeah that is kind of interesting now there is a batman villain named i think it's maximilian zeus and he's all about the the pantheon of the gods and everything so it could be at least maybe stemming from that that there's already a gateway into using roman history culture and mythology and so he decided to pull from it maybe yeah yeah well and it's so similar to to the mythology like this is modern mythology and modern stories and narrative you know it's it it goes right along with it so it's it's really fun to see it them actually kind of mixing it up for sure we could actually go issue by issue if you wanted to because there are some things i want to talk about in each anyways so we'll start with 30 we can start with the cover of 30 and then go into it because i know that the preface has all this too the prologue uh thoughts on the cover were you interested in the story besides me (laughs) telling you that you had to read it by looking at this cover (laughs) I, I, I was, I loved it as soon as I saw it. Yeah, for sure. Like that's what made me intrigued and, and it, and it really was different. We see like a really stylized, um, ancient, there it is. Yeah. There's the prologue. Okay. Yeah. Oh, but you're talking about this cover. Oh yeah. This cover kind of confused me because I was like, which one's Batgirl? I'm kidding. (laughs) But this one looked really terrifying and I was really still under trying to understand what was Roman about it. And so yeah. I was like looking at her clothes and what was going on with that little flower that she's wearing, like kind of a, almost like a tutu, but <laughs> that's her, that is her utility belt. Is that what you're talking about? It you're is. about to be canceled. You're the first canceled priest ever. Uh, I'm sure that's not true. Yeah, I'm sure it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this uh, this is Jimmy. The next page is really what got me, though. Okay, when you opened it up, yeah. And I would just say, like, this is a dynamic cover. It's fun. You can't really tell what's going on. You wouldn't know that it's Roman history from the top. I will say, coloring wise, the same grievance I had in the previous, I think, two episodes ago, is that Connor Hawk should be darker skinned because he's part Native American. I don't know. Recently, they've been consistent about making him really Caucasian looking. So that's my only gripe about this. But okay, yes, this is what it's you're the, talking it's about. It's the Italian fascist racist uh, stuff coming through. The uh, might <laughs> the, be true. The Aryan purity oh, coming through. Rock. Okay, yeah. Uh, this is what really got me. I love this. Um, I love how these guys um, are all massive. Uh, you, you know, in every army, you have tiny guys who are short like me, who, you know, can still fight in an army. But no, these guys are just huge. They are I love big. it. Um, Which I guess makes it all the more like, how do they lose that eagle if they all looked like this? <laughs> because the Britons were even larger. That's very true. As we know from good old Caesar. The history here. Do you want to talk about the Ninth Legion? Yeah, sure. So the the Ninth Legion is a real mystery and it still is like it it really is something that historians disagree about and we don't know. Uh, There is a legion within the Roman army. They're all numbered um, and, uh, you know, there's that goes up into the 20s and the Ninth Legion was one of the more uh, one of the more famous ones and ones that uh, especially in this time in the first century. BC and AD came to real prominence. Uh, It was made up mostly or historically of Spanish uh, mercenary soldiers. They were actually, I don't know, do you know this stuff? They were the ones, one of the legions that Julius Caesar took over in Gaul. Mm, It was one of his original uh, three or four that he took at at, um, when he first took legions in Gaul. 
they were his legion. Um, so these were real seasoned soldiers who had been, um, the legion itself had a lot of prominence for, um, for quite a while. In the story that we're kind of getting up to is the, the mystery of the, the ninth legion is that they disappear. Uh, and we have small bits of references to them until around 120 AD. Mm-hmm. And then we have nothing. And then in the early 200s, when some of the historians went through like a more systematic review of Roman armies and they gave the present day legions, the ninth legion is left out. Literally goes eight, 10, 11. They're not there anymore. They've been totally wiped out. And uh, there are some strange references within Roman literature or yeah, within Roman literature. Um, one of them, and this is what this is referring to, is that we know they're sent to, to Brittany, uh, to um, Britannia. And we know that during the, the conquest of Britannia, uh, the Britons had some very successful uh, fights against the Romans. Uh, especially a little bit later in like the 120s, 130s, we know like when Hadrian went to Rome or went to Britain, uh, there was some serious, serious fighting in which the Romans had large losses, but we actually don't know. No one recorded whether that was the ninth legion that was wiped out or not. And so historians have gone back and forth. There's people who say, oh, no, they were sent, they, they, they did fine. And they were sent to like, you know, Judea during the Jewish revolt in the 130s and they got wiped out. And others say, no, 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 they got sent to Parthia and Persia and they were in the Parthian war with Marcus Aurelius and they got wiped out there. And then others say, no, they, they really did die in Britain. It seems to be the most reasonable uh, just because there is no evidence of them elsewhere. And it seems reasonable that they probably were taken over in Britain, they were destroyed completely and they were never, because of that loss, they were never restored. They don't just like replenish the ninth legion. Yeah. And there's That's like all, a shame you know. factor there too, right? Oh yeah. Especially, Huge. you know, losing the the standard of the Eagle at that time would have been like, oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing. So there's probably another reason, like maybe they thought, I don't know, right. like it would be bad juju to start something up again for within a legion that had such a disaster happen to it. And the Romans would totally think like that. Yeah. yeah. They were very, very superstitious. And you know, within like a hundred years before, we we have the same thing happening at the, this is when the, the Romans go into Germany and the Battle of Teutonburg. Mm-hmm. This is like in like nine AD, I think. Uh, and they have three legions lost, completely wiped out. And that's when, uh, they send the, this general whose name becomes Germanicus, and he goes back to Germany, destroys the Germans, and he comes back with two of the three eagles. And that guy became one of the greatest Roman generals ever. Uh, and because of that, so th- it was a huge deal to them. It already did happen. So we know that they really cared about this. And the eagle was the, the sign of Roman power. And mm-hmm. so you had to go back and get it. If you lost it, Shame, shame, shame. <laughs> yeah. I'll always remember that one section of Caesar's on the Gallic War and how there's a soldier that's about to be killed. And before he dies, he throw he launches the eagle back within the camp that they just left because, yeah, their life is not worth as much as that eagle or the standard that the legion's carrying. 
Right. And it's weird for us in our modern days because we don't consider signs. Well, we don't think we consider signs uh, to be like really important or mm-hmm. that they actually have true meaning. And obviously, okay, I am a priest. I'm not going to turn on a sermon here, but <laughs> this is like, we often talk about this, that signs really do have meaning to them. I mean, look, um, we live in Charlottesville. Look how much crazy stuff has happened over the statues. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they really do mean something. People argue about what they mean, but everyone recognizes that they really mean something. And they can represent a great evil. They can represent a great good, but not just represent, but actually be it. And so here, this is what the eagles like. I'm bringing that up because that's what these signs really mean. Uh, and these eagles really mean it's like, that's Rome itself. It's the sign of Rome. And if you lose it, you're forsaking your homeland, you're forsaking your people. And I would actually think that the Romans would consider you should die mm, Yeah. <laughs> if you lose it. Yeah. So a question I had, I guess, for the end, once we get to know Agrippina and and everything that she's doing was just how extreme and fanatical she is. Just from what you've been saying, does it make sense then that with how much the standard and the eagle mean to people that this situation could, in fact, arise and it's a believable situation for the comic book world? The situation in the sense that someone would want to re- uh, think it has like a special power and want yeah, to restore it. Thought, yeah. Oh yeah. I love, I, I believe it with even now, like, I love this. Like, why not believe that we don't have to be in a comic book world. This is reality. Uh, Uh, yeah, let's go. I think it makes total sense. The only thing I'm confused by is that their other Eagles were lost. It's not like, and so that's where I want to make that clear. Like this is not the only Eagle that was lost. And so this is what leads me well, we'll get to this later. See, I'm skipping around, I'm skipping it. I get really oh, excited okay. about this. Yeah. Uh, it leads me to think of, it points to her character a little bit more of which Agrippina she is. Okay. And yeah. it could mean, so here's the other thing. Germanicus, that guy I talked about who restored two of the three eagles. Yep. That's Agrippina's dad. Did you know that? The elder or the younger? The younger. The younger. Okay. And I know the younger is the mother of Nero. Yeah. And we can talk about that. And she's yeah. the... The the wife for of Claudius, right? The the cripple. Yeah. So it does make sense if it probably was the younger. I think timeline wise too. Even though the elder was also technically within the Julio Claudians, but yeah, I'm kind of leaning towards the younger as well. But I did. There's some other reasons too. But yeah, okay. yeah. Overall, with this prologue, would you say that it's pretty accurate? I was, I kind of squinched my eyes about the archers from Syria. I wondered if they would actually have been a part of the Ninth Legion or not. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. There, there's a lot of little things in there like that. There, there were definitely archers from Syria within Roman armies. Were they the one in the Ninth Legion being sent all the way up here? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, because Rome had a lot of issues going on and they had to defend many different um, borders at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, if there's a group from Syria, um, they're probably going to keep them in the Judea um, region because there's huge uh, revolts going on at that point. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a bit strange to pull them like such a distance because you would almost want to keep them close to the province. So I'm glad we're on the same page there. Uh, yeah, I agree. Okay. 
Let's see. I mean, any thoughts as I'm kind of like flipping through, if you've taken any notes, I have some like very particular um, character thoughts, but it's only going to make sense from coming from me because I've been with these characters. So it's more like, (laughs) so I want to hear those as a first time reader, uh, see anything that pops out to you. But um, this is something. So Cassandra is illiterate. She couldn't speak either. This is her history. The way she spoke is through body language. And so she could read someone and their fight, which is why she was such a lethal fighter. And then this guy came up and kind of rearranged uh, her brain patterns. And so she can speak a little bit now. Yeah. So it's interesting that she says, you know, can't read best way to learn about crimes is by watching. And I, I just found this very interesting that Barbara is the one apologizing, you know, like, Oh, I'm sorry. I brought that back up, but it's really, I don't know. Cassandra already knows she can't read. It's kind of up to her now to, to be a go-getter and, and start learning. And Barbara has tried to help her out a, a bit with that, but she's not been on board. A trope that happens a great deal with comics. Oh, there's the ring. I thought that was a pretty cool thing. By the way, before I even get to that, would you be a member of the social club if it actually existed? <laughs> no, I hate secret societies. Okay. <laughs> I just wondered. The Ninth Legion. Let's see here. Okay. A trope for whatever reason of hero comics is that when two meet for the first time, inevitably there's a fight. And I found it really interesting that Cassandra is fighting Connor Hawk here and takes him, which it really does seem shady. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are arrows with the murder. So, yes, you know, if you put two and two together, it makes sense. But for someone who can read body language and the fact that he's talking to her and saying, you know, listen, 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 we're on the right page or the same side. I'm shocked that she would continue to fight him. I think this is not necessarily knowing. And this is poor Chuck, as you call him. His name is Chuck, but it's just weird. You you just like <laughs> name him all the time. I don't think it's Ch- poor Chuck. I, I think I'm really impressed by Chuck. <laughs> no, actually. you didn't say poor Seriously. Chuck, but because he's dropping in midway, he might not fully know the Cassandra Kane character, but I think she would know right away that Connor wasn't lying mm-hmm. and his body language would, would talk. So this is an unnecessary fight. It's just a trope, I think, in comics. And it's also shocking knowing Cassandra as I do that she could get, well, I think. He's not, he wouldn't be able to do this to her to capture her two arms. I think, I don't know what's going on there. And then the fact that she got snuck up on, I think is also unrealistic. But we saw later on that she was actually feigning her concussion. So I can go along with it. Um, I think I think that's like, it like pulls it together in a sense, like it yeah. saves it. But I think you're right. It doesn't really, uh, it doesn't carry through on her character the rest of the, even just in these three episodes. Yeah. How would you, I mean, this is a tough question, but just with these three issues, how would you describe Cassandra or what kind of did you pull out from her character? Because this is hard. Like, I do feel bad throwing you in, like just midway. No, I had to look up. I did not. I was like tracking. It was okay. going, and then when I read that, wait, she can't, she can't read. I was like, what in the world? So I had to look up things okay. then. And uh, it was, it was hard to get in at first, but then once I read just a kind of brief overview of Cassandra's life, then I was like, okay, mm-hmm. got it. And then it all made sense. Yeah. It was, it was a little bit hard to jump in on these three. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but it's I it's been fun. So totally like though this guy, the 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 cop guy. Oh yeah, fires here. Yep. 
and they're Gosh. just they just pal around. He's kind of like an unlikable guy or someone that you like to maybe not like, but he seems to just be really capable and kind of a super spy at times too. <laughs> I li- I like Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. He's got some good humor as as we see him uh, in the next issues. And then we get to finally see Agrippina the, for random a butt shot there. <laughs> Fermented honey. So we're we're really we're leaning into it here. Wait, um, and then on top of the Gotham skyscraper is an ancient Roman villa scene. Yeah. In and exciting with some That's columns, great. Doric columns, I guess. Oh yes, yeah, suspected poisoner, too soon to tell. Do you want to talk about which one we think or wait until the end? But here uh, we, we can... have her cataphracts. These are the guys we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah, these are these guys are like Roman samurais is what they reminded me of. Um yeah, we can wait. We can wait okay. and, and and tell really who who we who we actually think Agrippina might be. Yeah. I was a little turned off just like I thought they would be like super 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 devoted and so they'd also be intelligent, but then when she is saying right. then they will join the rest on Caron's barge and make the journey to the valley. They're like, say what? So it's like, oh man, it kind of, the, the, the veil almost dropped a bit. Like, okay, well she's 100% in this, but these are just like hired minions that she's gotten and they're not necessarily all on board, but well, I guess they have to be somewhat on board since they are putting their lives on the line for this revivified resurrected Rome. But okay. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about the coloring in these episodes? Sure. Because it seems to me like she changes in 30. Oh, interesting. She's, you know, her eyes, her, um, the way they do her face. She's, I got the impression that she's like a, almost she is a shade, a spirit of, Mm. of um, an ancient Roman woman who, you know, maybe the power, part of the power of the eagle is to actually like come back and be fully corporeal or something. Uh, but then in the other ones in 31 and 32, she becomes more uh, feminine. Uh, she takes on rather than like a ghostly look, but more of like a human kind of work. Uh, feminine. Yes. Yeah, you look at that cover, that cover is oh, yeah. terrifying. And then later on she gets these yeah, look at those eyes. Yeah. Like th- those eyes are way more Oh yeah. They're not uh like empty anymore. So it seems to me like it kind of changed a little yeah. bit in what they're trying how they're trying to present her and maybe they didn't really know is this I don't know, is her coloring weird? Yeah, well even normal? the art style, I guess I would say since yeah, her eyes aren't just all blacked out, it's more human-like. And then, yeah, you're absolutely right about she was completely white and silver. And now we've got some some purple and royal blue going on. The penciler himself is the same. The inkers changed, but the colorists were the same. So I think that's just a discrepancy and maybe like a more detail, like maybe there was a shift from 30 to 31 and how Dixon was describing her or how Damien Scott decided to portray her. So I think that's just a really interesting shift that they decided to that decided to go to yeah it was noticeable yeah especially compared Look to this right here yeah <laughs> it really is uh thoughts on this cover this is amazing got her thumbs down like commodus in the gladiator film yeah right very good yeah so now we actually get a sense i think of what the story is actually about and if you, it might still be difficult, I think, for people who are not versed in Roman history to get a sense that there's some Roman history going on in here. But for you and I, like, yeah, I get that whole thing. 
it's and then again pretty dynamic with the fight scene going on below and then up top the the judge it's pretty great yeah okay oh so this is the cataphract okay so we can i don't know if these people so i did have to research them these were actually people that i hadn't heard of before now i will easily and readily admit that the roman history part of or I should say Roman military part of Roman history is probably like my weakest section, which is another we reason I had you We were both that way. Oh, I <laughs> no, thought we you were, were better that. than I. Oh, okay. Oh, no, I always thought you were better than me. Oh, geez. <laughs> Only because of Caesar. Like all of the stuff I needed to know, I knew. But besides that, I was just, yeah, not that big on it. But so a cataphract, which in its spelling had a PH. So it was interesting that the actual subtitle had an F in it but it is what it is. Okay, so it was a form of armored heavy cavalrymen that originated in Persia and then was fielded in ancient warfare throughout Eurasia and Northern Africa. It actually derives from Greek, which is, let's see here, cataphractus or cataphractus, literally meaning armored or completely enclosed. (laughs) Heavily armored horsemen, the rider and the mount are completely covered in scale armor. So already I have a bit of an issue because these are all infantrymen that we've seen in this story, not actually cavalrymen. They typically use a or wield a contos or a lance as their primary weapon. We've seen Yeah, a lot that's of what archers. I was about to say is that, you know, cavalry, it didn't necessarily mean you're on a horse, you know, yeah. if you were cavalry or if you were um, an archer. And, uh, and so it, it's kind of confusing. I think we're a bit out of time with this, if only because it seems like this was late third and fourth century for the Roman army. Um, and this we're talking about what first and second. If we're, yeah, except up. the fact that we're, you know, we're trying to bring back the Roman we Empire. Are. So maybe she's able to use the best of any age. That's true. The best of any age, though, I still don't. Th- I think this is really over. This is like I like how the stylized guys in the very in in thirty were. Yeah. In, in the prologue, this is um, uh, to me a little bit overdone, and he can't type on that phone. I mean, look at that. He's got he's got like lobster claws. You know, you can't shoot an arrow with lobster claws. Oh, but did you notice what their pizza company's name was? Nero's, wasn't it? Big Nero's. Big Nero's. I think go back, go back to the uh, the intro one. Uh, you can see the van. Big Nero's. Big Nero's. Interesting. Look at that. Yeah. So lots of Nero here, which I think that's again, a clue. Was, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. Typically, the Roman cavalry was wasn't really heavily armed or heavily armored. I should say they were mostly lightly armored horsemen, weren't they, with spears and swords? Yeah. Exactly. And. And also when you talk about like people like the cataphracts who were of Syrian origin, that didn't mean that the Romans then copied them. It meant usually that they would pay them. So it doesn't really even make them Roman per se. It just means that the Romans would incorporate them. Uh, maybe not their even their technology or style, but just literally incorporate the people. Yeah. Um, there were changes of course, but it didn't, um, it didn't always happen that the Romans themselves were taking on those changes. And then final question on them, of course, would be the coloring. Do you think it would be this bold? <laughs> I would hope so. Red and yellow. I really hope they're that bold walking the ancient battlefield with that stuff on. Love it. 
apparently they were really decisive. Like they would lead charges to break through the opposing heavy, heavy cavalry and infantry. It's amazing. So they would just, it'd be kind of like Red Rover, Red Rover. And they're just <laughs> ramming them. <laughs> oh man, crazy. It's like demolition derby and why you can't use Cadillacs and demolition derbies anymore. They're too strong. Oh, I guess. Yeah, they are pretty heavy. Yeah. Okay. I, well, yeah, we're getting more details in this lady. As you said, it's a good point to point that out. Oh, we have this statue. Did you want to talk about the statue here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I wish, did ask I, Sean, wish I had a better answer. That's okay. I did ask Sean. I said, Sean, who is this? I mean, she's really worshipful of him. I feel like it could be any of the Julio Claudians. My knee jerk would be like, oh, well, Caesar, but Caesar didn't really look like that. I don't know. And could it be a god? But yeah, any thoughts? A couple of thoughts on I've never seen a toga go that short for a man <laughs> short in the front and then long in the and back. long in the back what <laughs> is going on uh roman sculptures with the arms uh usually arms had to be supported because they broke off and so that that stance that he's in is really unfamiliar for uh like a roman sculpture i could be corrected you could probably find one against that and some sculptures wanted to be bold sculptors wanted to be bold so they didn't arm out but it's a weird stance uh as well Given all of that, I did look at some of the people who I was ex- suspecting it could be. Uh, so I was thinking maybe Germanicus, but definitely not Germanicus. Um, the only similarity I could find was Emperor Claudius. Hmm. There was similarity in the hair. Um, hairstyles were a really big deal and distinctive fi- uh, features in ancient Rome. Um, so a lot of times you can date or identify a sculpture by their hair, especially by facial hair, if there is any. And so the curly shaggy hair of this guy could seem a little bit closer to Claudius than to others. That's my best shot I got, but the toga just really bugs me. It is very bizarre. They wouldn't have portrayed Claudius either with his club foot, would they have? They would have kind of given him an ideal Figure. That's a great question. Yeah, I, I think they I think they did. And the one I was looking at did definitely didn't have a club foot. It doesn't mean that there's not one out there. And I would love to be corrected if anyone knows, but I don't yeah. think so. I think everyone can take our word for these things. We could lie up a storm. <laughs> Does and anyone like, care? Well, they've got the <laughs> in classics. So. Hardly. Yeah. And then it does say the ninth. So I think that that could lend it, yeah, to Germanicus or or Claudius, probably. It's interesting though. Why not name it? I guess that would be my other other question. Like what is what is Chuck losing? Or really what does he hope to gain by having it a mystery? Okay, so this is another one point. Like why then does she come to this guy and talk to them if we can but find the eagle of the ninth, right? So she's she's connected with him. And there is some power that she's gonna get that is in honor of him. Mm-hmm. And so who is she honoring? Uh, it was my question. Like, who could this be that is Claudian, that is a strong leader and an emperor? So, yeah, it's interesting. Her dad, I think, again, is a really good guess here. It doesn't look like him, but it is a good guess. Um, and he was the one who had restored two eagle standards already. And so there's like his search is kind of matched by her search now. But then, but also it kind of makes sense to be Claudius, except the fact that Agrippina, his wife, poisoned him. Yeah. There was <laughs> Probably. That. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, I serve you. So it's someone who, 
Oh yeah, I forgot. Maybe that not one. necessarily yeah, right. willingly, but it does seem like there is admiration there. So I, I would say that she never had admiration for Claudius. Really? You don't think you think so? Oh yeah. I so I think there I think there was. I think Claudius himself was one of the few people in her circles who matched her intellect and her desire of of politics and knowing how to how to rule through not open power, but through real, I, what word am I looking through? Real um, kind of like sinister behind the scenes action. Okay. Uh, Claudius is good at that. He was very smart. And, you know, he, he had lived through the Caligula um, slaughter because of how he played the fool. That is true. Yeah. Yep. So and. So I don't think, yeah, she probably didn't like, you know, his club foot, uh, but I think she, I think she could have admired him. Okay. So mutual respect potentially. Potentially. Okay. Okay. So we don't have answers on that folks because that statue is never named, but there are some good guesses on our sides. And Chuck, if you're listening, you could, if you could give us that, I would be happy. Oh, I should tweet them out, tweet them out and ask. Give us a name. Yeah, give us a name. Tell me who it is. Okay, I'm going to flip through again. Stop me if you have any notes on any of these. I just have two, maybe three character moments. So this is where Cass is leading Eddie and Connor to her lair. I was a bit turned off by her quickly removing her mask. And only because if you peek behind the curtain, she got in trouble about being very careless with her identity by Batman as well as Barbara. And she had to go through this whole thing. And so she's going to protect it and guard it better. And then she kind of throws it off like here. So I'm not sure if I agree with that, but this is yeah. Fun, <laughs> fun scene just with Batman being there, Eddie giving Batman attitude. And then Eddie being sad that his, his guns have to be thrown away. Literally thrown away, literally thrown away down. On, yep. And he just, what did he do? He just reblued them, <laughs> which I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? I, doesn't that mean to be like put back in active force, like as a policeman? Oh, interesting. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I just didn't look that up. Well, the art has changed for whatever reason. Yeah. I I, I'm even yeah, looking at Eddie now right. compared to what he was before. Yeah, exactly. Huh. I'm not sure what's happening. Uh, shipper, as you know, I do like couples. Uh, Sean knows firsthand that I like to couple, you know, all of my students and everything. And we used to do the same thing, though. We used to watch people as they blossomed into relationships. But having Tim and Steph on an actual date was lovely. And then what do you think about the switcheroo with this whole thing where, let's see, Jack is taken. And then all of a sudden, some random man comes out who's not Jack. I had to read it. I had to read it twice because I'm a slow reader. (laughs) No, that's okay. I also had to until I got to me. I was like, okay, that's what happened. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, it does say that's not dad. So he was, (laughs) he was like trying to lead us by holding our hands on this, but it kind of showed me that maybe the writing could have been better right there. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least the sequencing of, of how it's being portrayed in the frames, because he did have to lead you through the, uh, through the dialogue, like by holding your hand basically. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it was fun. It was a surprise. And I guess it is supposed to be a surprise. So maybe that's, maybe it was successful, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had to read it a couple times too. I think this bottom panel is what threw me off just because you have Jack, you have the silhouette of a man, and then you have the arrow. And so I automatically thought, uh uh-oh, that's, you know, the cataphracts or whoever. But that's Robin, right? It was not Robin, Connor Hawk. Connor Hawk, sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. (laughs) Because Robin is still in the audience. So that's that's the reason why. Yeah. So anyways, I agree with you that I had to figure out who who was this. And then I couldn't tell from the art that that was actually Eddie. So that's what also threw me through me. And then, of course, the cataphracts are trying to stop him. So I think that's yeah, there's there's Robin and, and Steph. And then, of course, they're going to change pretty quickly. Art wise, internally, what do you think about how they choreograph fights? I should say he Damien Scott, how he choreographs fights and shows off Cass. This part I really liked. I thought this was really cool with all the red arrows against the black. And, um, you know, the way he's like crossing over the frames here, there's just so much motion in it. And it's it's just really cool how he's characterizing her by like the shadow almost, but then the red's going in and out. And uh, I really like this one. Pretty cool. And a lot of it is, which happens frequently throughout this book, a lot of it is without words. Of course, we just, we have that wow there, but don't have much going on just because she's she's a silent assassin anything else on 31 i think that's it for me okay that's all i had as well and then of course you have so this is now we've got a big superhero t- team up yeah is this normal this seems uh <laughs> a little bit over the top given how cool i thought that girl was like yeah what these people now we've got multiple people yeah it's I would say it's abnormal for a, a back row book to have more than one person you're teaming up with. I, do you think the? I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Do you think the threat level warrants having four people, four and a half if we count Eddie? Yeah. I mean, the cataphracts are pretty scary and it seems like they've been effective, right? There's only one person left on their hit list. Well, no, four or five, I guess. And they've been going across the country. So it does seem like the threat level is up there. So I just don't know, you know, not knowing the universe here, the world that this isn't, I don't know who those people are. Uh, And so that's where, for me, it was like, well, why, why does she really need that girl? Uh, Yeah. So who is that girl in the back with the O? Yeah. So that was the blonde girl that Tim was with. Oh. Uh, So her name is Spoiler. Uh She will become a future, she's Robin for like two days and gets fired. And then she becomes bad girl at one point but her father like the main thing is her father was a villain and like not the best of villains but she ended up being this spoiler to really get him arrested and take him down oh interesting and cassandra's parents were also assassin villains right yeah yep so they've both had some yeah some poor upbringings tim is i suppose the only one that's not maladjusted Connor, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Too I'm much sure about there's, him, yeah. Besides, uh, being, yeah. Could you please translate the dialogue here into Latin? No. We kicked your butt. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't think I've ever done kick. What do you think kick is? I can look it up. Are you, you okay? Know. William Whitaker's words. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, the Wenny Weedy Wiki, this of is course. the, the yep. famous, we came, we saw, we conquered Julius Caesar. And now it is, uh, you know, in the, in the DC world. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Seen as, as he's looking up on William Whitaker's, what kicked is. Yeah. So like, uh, Veni Vidi Calcatrini Asinus, Asinum. 
I guess it's plural though, too, yeah. right? Wow, there you go. No, that's singular. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I was excited that in the very in 30, they got all the plurals correct, even a plural neuter, which is pretty exciting, which is an A. And this um, is pre Google Translate. So he might have had to actually do some don't work on Don't use his own. Google Translate for Latin? No, I'm just saying though. I know. No, I tell everyone that because it's <laughs> awful. But I'm just saying he wouldn't because I think when I encounter it in the like in comics and in video games I'm like, "Oh my gosh, you guys just used Google Translate." But this would have been 2002. Right. That's before Google Translate. So he would have had to do some homework on his own. So I applaud Chuck this is where I'm saying Chuck's, Chuck's got this from some somewhere. I and uh, I would like to know, like, maybe he had a friend who was, you know, into this and it's cool. He's got a nerdy friend. I'll be sure afterwards I'll, I'll tweet him out and, and see what he has to say. I also want to point attention to uh, there's a We Remember 9-11 bubble. Yep. So I didn't notice that on my first read through. So final cover doesn't have much to do with Roman history, except for the we came, we saw, we kicked her butt. But that wouldn't make sense out of context unless you had read the rest of the story and just, yeah, some sinister looks. And really, I think the big buy-in here is that you've got this big team up of all the, the teens, not all the teens, but uh, a good portion of the teens in the DC universe. Oh yes. And the about to, oh, I love you it. You are about to die. Salute you. Okay. This is, I mean, yeah. So everything's coming to his head. Oh man. Crazy. Yeah, this is terrifying. Okay, yes, the crucifixion. Pretty accurate? <laughs> For what? <laughs> I don't know. Well, accurate. that he would be tied up. <clears throat> we that is everyone think well, I shouldn't say everyone, but the vast majority of people think that nails were commonplace, but it really was more often than not ropes. Yeah, uh, simply just because uh nails don't work as well. Yeah. And then she does talk about the real reason they die, doesn't she? About the suffocation? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah she does. Um, she gets this. This is the um, this is where you get a really good uh, insight into Roman torture. Uh, they were some of the best in the world creating this. And crucifixion uh, is one of the most sinister where, yeah, it's really painful and very embarrassing. Uh, but you actually die drowning, suffocating under your own fluid as your lungs slowly fill up bit by bit. Wow, you said it's that's so sinister-like. Pretty awful. Well, we talk about crucifixion quite a bit, you know. Yeah, I mean, so. it is true. I, I would also, though, comment that it would only fill up, though, your lungs when you're actually st- stood up and crucified, not right. when you're having a nice, relaxing spa like this, under yeah. infrared lights. Yeah, the... The trident. I know. Very interesting. Yeah, she's got some bruisers that don't necessarily follow the theme, it seems like, they, though they'd still have masks on. Yeah, we're getting, yeah, yeah. Okay. This was an interesting scene. This was what I really disagreed with. Yeah, where they're talking about Cass once Cass is away from them, which is rude. But Connor says she's really different. Steph says she's weird. And Tim says, spoiler, in a nice way. And uh, Tim kind of defends her and says she has a lot of issues. And Steph says, yeah, like eBay has a lot of auctions. So what draws me away from that is because she has had really strong issues, Cassandra has, with both Tim and 
by issues, I mean stories with Tim and Steph separately. And they've reached like really deep understanding of one another. So Mm. this is, I think, just another flaw that, you know, Chuck has jumped in here after the character has been on her own path in in a particular way. But this is something that I don't think they would have been saying because they have all become friends. Connor is the only one that's the outsider that hasn't really dealt with Cassandra that much. But this was just a really weird scene for me. Okay. So we're getting, oh, now he's upright. Now he is. Yeah. But so once you're upright, I mean, typically it takes a couple of days to die though from crucifixion. Did and she he's, say she's kind like of it'll speeding be hours? Up the process. Oh, she's speeding up the process. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It seems like that, right? Because now he's basically now, you know, uh, it's getting difficult to breathe. No, well, no, it wouldn't get difficult to breathe for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> so story, story wise, we're trying to, yeah. Speed yeah. pace. He does call her Caligulette, which I thought was fun. He called her Xena earlier on. Yeah. And so Caligulette, um, Caligula is her brother uh, and he became emperor and is, famous for many things but mostly for debauchery and 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 pointless murders and just awful stuff yeah agrippina is his little sister if it's the one that we think it is we get a brief history lesson again just to bring tim up to speed yeah which is interesting now uh drawing wise because now the eagle standard has changed from what it was in the preface of 30 Mm mm-hmm where it had a Luna signate on it and some other things. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, we have to trust that the credits are right, but it does seem that there is some significant drawing changes during the time. Some inconsistencies there. It's also interesting that the statement, this woman believes there's a power in the Eagle that is her birthright. Just the fact that culturally, you know, the woman would very much not have such a birthright, but she's really breaking out of that and, and feels like, she deserves it given uh, who her parent, the parentage is, and then her husband as well. And it, that makes us, it makes me point to Agrippina, the younger mm-hmm. who once Claudius, her husband dies slash is poisoned by her. Uh, she and her son Nero is too young to actually uh, take on full responsibilities as emperor. She is the first true Roman empress. She really is. Uh, she governs and uh, takes on certain authorities that no one had ever, no woman had ever taken on. Hashtag feminism. Uh, because yeah. she's a poisoner, or at least yes. <laughs> do you think that's why her skin is so pale? It could be. Or that I, I think she is the ancient woman herself. Okay. Oh, yeah. As you said, kind of seeking... Uh, kind of like her spirit and she is seeking bodily form something like that maybe (laughs) yeah i noticed that her clothing changed colors again now it's blue light blue rather than the the blue purple so and the white yeah and the white the white purple early on yeah i was trying to think if there's any significance there so she ends up dying uh, in real you know in historically she dies because her son nero kills her Mm mm-hmm uh, by trying to drown her. <laughs> and when that doesn't work, he just sends soldiers to cut off her head. <laughs> Mommy dearest. So, yeah. I know. And now we have the toga on the sculpture draping over the other shoulder. It's changed. Yeah, it has. Can't tell. And the word bubbles in front. Can't tell about the length of the toga. 
Well, but the arms are totally different too now. Yeah. So maybe she has just lots of these, which is pretty typical. Yeah. She's laying down like a good Roman does while eating. Except, do you notice the mistake? Is Is she on her wrong arm? Yes, she is. She's eating with her left hand, which was literally the the word for left in Latin is sinister. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that would be the left hand was considered not to be correct, but also to be unclean because in, you know, when you use the bathroom, you would wipe yourself with your left hand. So culturally, nothing was eaten, greeted, or done officially with your left hand. Uh, And so here she is eating with her left hand and... That's a no, no. But when you're like, when you're a soul that's been wandering around for 2000 years, you forget this stuff. So that's true. let's give her some breaks. Absolutely. Okay. So now we're just moving into the climax, big fight. Yeah. I love the arrows. They do them so well. I really like that. We're just flipping through for, uh, for listeners here. And then luckily, because I did have a question, you know, that this is a Batgirl comic, but we got this full blown team up. But it is nice that in the climactic fight that she, Cassandra, is the one fighting Agrippina. I think that is only right since it is her book. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I love uh, Agrippina's words for her. I think maybe maybe it's here or a little bit farther down or the next page where she then calls her. Like she actually kind of respects her, right? Because she breaks. Yeah, she punches her and she says, kill the gladiatrix. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's a really great term of respect there. Like she notices that she's the best, uh, the best fighter out there. Yep. Absolutely. I did note that as a, you know, a literature nerd, the story almost grows with the different people joining like a tricol and Crescens because you've got <laughs> Connor and then there's Connor and Eddie and then Love it's it. Connor and Robin and spoiler. <laughs> so Love like it. Getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. So things are on fire. For whatever reason, Agrippina pulls out a liar. <laughs> and then she really does look otherworldly at this this bottom panel on page 19, just the flames all around her, and she's just plucking away. Do you think she survived? <laughs> I I think Cassandra leaves that option there. And so I am going to follow Batgirl's senses over any rationality that I might have. I do like how, I mean, that's definitely about a Cassandra thing that she never wants anyone to die, no matter who they are. So the fact that she is willing to rush into these engulfing flames and try to save Agrippina, that's spot on character wise. And do you think, what do you think is the significance of her dying or, you know, disappearing here by fire? Well, yeah, especially with the the liar, just because I, I think it is a myth that's not necessarily true, but that Nero played his fiddle while Rome burned in order to make room for his golden house. So I feel like it's another nod potentially to Nero. And then. Right. And which, Nero's her yeah. son, right? Right. Nero's yeah. her son. Yep. And then go back a couple. Um, she has this great line when she starts the fight with Batgirl. Uh, she says, I won't be defeated by kids. Is that what she says? Yes. Oh, yeah. I will not be brought low by children. Which is really ironic if it's Agrippina the younger, and I. Mm-hmm. This is where I think this is uh, this is why it's kind of fun to think about her as this is that Agrippina the younger was killed by her son, and so here she is like fighting again and be like, no, I will not be brought low by children. Then Batgirl defeats her, wants to save her, unlike her own son, and then she dies in the flames like Nero, or Nero didn't die, but uh, in that way. Yeah. So in a sense, like still dying 
in the hands of Nero, her son, by these kids. Yep. Oh, irony. And oh, I do man. wonder about the the cataphracts. Well, they're stripping, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, they're actually pulling off their gear, potentially to make a quicker escape. But you kind of wonder like, oh, man, is their job over now? Do they have to get back to the real world? Are they going to be minions for the rest of their life and try to find another villain that they can find job with? I don't know. Yeah, I was really hoping that they were also ancient people brought yeah. back to life. But it seems I can't. That's not a tenuous or plausible yeah. just with yeah i mean some people i think really play into it like this one guy is saying what about exalted agrippina and then the other's like oh, she's on her own pal but that one in the first issue not knowing about the yeah right not knowing about yeah. the you know the, the sticks and yeah. come on everyone knows that right yep and then yeah so we didn't see her die that's normally you know in tv and things like that it's normally a nod that this person might be alive i have no idea if she pops up again but i did research her and it seems like these are her only appearances so i think we might she might be gone or just waiting for another time that she can resurrect rome and then yeah we find out that of all people there we go jack is the one who had the the staff and and tim is looking at it as well And then it's true. You actually talked about this a lot in your classes. Uh, Tim says to his father, you said it was a myth. And then Jack says myths have to be based on something, Tim. And that's something (laughs) that I've talked about as well. But people would always, or students would always come in and be like, Mr. McDermott said that those gods probably really existed. And I'm like, okay, kids. But I mean, it is true that because tales have transcended time and people's like there had to have been someone that's actually based off of. Yeah. Kind I, of, yeah. I, well, I think there's, uh, there's always the tendency in modernity to look back and be like, well, they weren't as smart as we were uh, or, or just like, yeah, you see what they believed. But if you take a look at our own culture, we have some really weird stories that we tell and some really weird ideas for sure. And so looking back, like, I think like, no, these people were much more like you than you could ever believe. And if they're in the modern world, yeah, they might, you know, still fight like Agrippina and, you know, do all that sort of stuff. But uh, back then there was in all myths and all stories, there's an attempt to understand, uh, to understand the world around them. And they do that through uh, stories, through narratives But a lot of those narratives have a truth to them. They all have some sort of truth. They all participate in truth. Uh, But even the events in them are, some of them, quite true. So, and I also, because I'm a sucker for good stories, it's like, why not believe that they were real? It just seems so much more fun. And then the world kind of opens up a little bit more. And that's the other thing is we, we kind of shut everything down and flatten everything out. Uh, and I think it's a lot more fun to view the world in, in a more dynamic way where there's interacting forces and there is direction, but there's also uh, a freedom and there's also chance, but there's also some sort of fate, not in the sense of determinism, but there's like a drawing towards an inevitable end. Uh, that's what makes these stories really fun. Yeah. So why not believe that they're true? Yeah, I do believe in all the Greek gods and goddesses. It's just that, you know, they're not the only ones out there and yeah. they were created. So yeah, yeah take that. <laughs> take Zeus. that. 
Roman mythology. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't love, I think, Latin as much as I do if it didn't have this world attached to it. Like, that's definitely one of the draws to it. It's just like this puzzle and this time capsule that brings all this unique stuff to it. And yeah, it really has opened my eyes, too, and yeah. me to ask questions, too. And that none of it, none of it is totally separated either. That this is what mythology gets right is that uh, the created physical world uh, is one and the same together with the created spiritual world, right? It's not like there's the material world and then there's the spiritual kind of out there uh, separate and sometimes it comes down. No, God created physical and spiritual together at the same time. Uh, So all creation is this interaction of spiritual and physical and they're not separated and they're also not against each other, which the Romans did some of Roman philosophers thought, but uh, <laughs> not all of them thought that. I don't. Yeah. So I won't go there. Yeah, for but, a podcast uh, at another time. Yeah, or a different podcast. Sorry. Yeah. Oh man, I love this stuff. So I guess two final questions then. Roman history wise, how well do you think this story succeeded? You know, I I just I really like that Chuck went for this, um, and so. There were little things missing. I think what happened is that there's a lot of discontinuity between Chuck and the artist, uh, Darian. Damien. You see the Damien? Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I think if Chuck and Damien kind of talked a little bit more together, I think it would have been like an eight out of 10. But okay. because there's those other things that weren't supported by, by some of the pictures, I think I would move it down to a six and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe it's seven. And that's for that, Roman that's history? harsh, I guess. Yeah. That's for the Roman history okay. and the, 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 um, how they're depicted. Okay. Then the more difficult question, since I just kind of threw you in there, but what are your thoughts on the story as a whole? No, the story the I love. Yeah. And the that's pacing what, and all that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what I love. I love okay. that they're bringing in like this random legion that even historians have no idea about. And that really did go missing. Uh, and I love that sense of bringing back the a real true Roman idea of signs and symbols and power. I love it. I think that works great. I don't know if it freaked out other Batgirl readers who actually read Batgirl uh, <laughs> way more than I do. And oh. I, I should read it more. But I love that part. Okay. So overall, what would you give this out of 10 cataphracts? Yeah. So, I mean, I have no experience in this. So... Just whatever you think. If you were, well, if this were a project that a seventh grader gave you, <laughs> that he oh, taught at seventh crap, grade. this is a 10 out of 10. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh. And I think maybe that's the way to look at it, right? Is like, did this work as an inventive kind of entering into or bringing two worlds together? I think it really worked. I think it was fun. And in what you're saying, and what surprised me is how many other characters had to come to assist Batgirl and how it brought together this her whole world, basically, because yeah. Batman gets involved, too. Yeah, I'm going to rate this pretty high. I'm going to go high? to a nine. Okay. Yeah, I can't he give does. it out of ten because I, <laughs> okay. I don't have anything else to compare this is perfect. to. perfect, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that Batman, you said he gets involved, but he doesn't get so involved that he actually appears, appears to help fight it. So they still- Does he do that in other ones? It depends on the people. So like, for instance, her father, David Kane, whenever he's involved, Batman's definitely there because he doesn't really like Cassandra to interact with her father. But otherwise, I mean, she has her own agency, so he he lets her go. So I think similar to that. Yeah, I liked I think 
because you had all those characters, it really shows the threat level is high. I like the thought of resurrecting Rome. I think about it all the time, what it would be like. <laughs> we practically had a Julius Caesar in office for four years. Come on. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. But remember, let's be honest, that if you enter into ancient Rome, this is what we always played in, in our classes, right? Sure. It's like you have a 2% chance to be the Roman that you actually would like to be. <laughs> that is also then- true. Everyone else is living quite miserable yes. lives. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, the one percent are living it up, and everyone else is a slave. Yeah, that's L- literally uh, the majority of people in this country. Um, do you have international listeners? Potentially, yeah. I'm wow. Sure. Well, yeah. and to those international listeners out there, even you, if you're listening to this podcast, you live a materially comfortable life on par with, if not better, probably better than any of the ancient Romans. Oh. Even Agrippina and Caligula and Claudius, better than them. Better than them. You don't agree? What are your... Materially comfortable? Materially comfortable. But international, like every nation though? Uh, If you're listening to this podcast, yeah. Oh, okay. Meaning you have the means to listen to it. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you already have and, power, right? Yeah. You already know, you know, you know, you can read, you can, you know, yeah. uh, interact in this way. Oh yeah. You live far, language, far yeah. away and above than um, probably even Roman emperors. Yeah. And definitely then they're the province that they are currently living in probably. Ooh, yeah. At that time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was tough. Yeah. What else was I going to say about this book? Oh, yeah. Just a couple grievances in terms of characterization of Cassandra, like I said, with the, the the friends and everything. But it was fun to see them together. And yeah, having Roman history appear in a comic book that I'm reading, can't go wrong with that, I think. I think I only have a couple like, oh, maybe that's not necessarily so accurate, but I think we can we can give it some grace for sure. Yeah, I'm glad Chuck went for it. Chuck went for it. Yeah, I will tweet out to him. And if he responds, I'll be sure to let you know what he says. And then when I record the second half, I can also tell the peoples. Well, can't do you do a blog like uh, Father <laughs> Jerkins, a.k.a. Perkins does? I was just going to this is usually the time where I'm like, how can we support you besides going to your church? You don't need to support me. Um yeah, no, Father Jerkins, uh, that is our, that's our project. The earth, oh, uh, earthaltar.org is our project for, uh, you know, the, the millions of Anglo-Catholics out there who read our stuff. Okay. Yeah. By million site, earthaltar.org. Okay. I, because I spoke over to you, over you. So I didn't want to. Okay. It has been a pleasure. You came oh, thank on. You. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It is my pleasure, this but you're was, welcome. It was a lot of fun. Yes. And I'll let you know if you get more viewership than, <laughs> than you are. Says so apparently it's a competition. The Anglican versus the Presbyterian. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we'll go. have to, yeah, we'll have to catch up and not just by running into each other randomly on Rugby Road. Agreed. Thank you so much, Stella. My it's pleasure. an honor. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Okay. When I come back, I am going to talk a little bit more about Sixth the Musical. I'm going to give you some news. I'm going to also go through an interview that Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad did with DC Comics. And I will cover some modern quickies, including Batman and Nightwing, and also some letters, some emails. 
But first, it's Zias' Radio Hour featuring XYs from Six, the musical. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. And tonight, we are... Listen up, let me tell you a story. A story that you think you've heard before. We know you know our names and our fame and our faces. Know all about the glories and the disgraces. A stupid rat. So I picked up a pen and a microphone. History's about to get overthrown. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. But just for you tonight, we're divorced, beheaded, live. To the show, to the history. So if you try to dump me, you won't try that again. I am that Berlin girl and I'm up next. See, I broke England from the church. Yeah, I'm that sexy. Why did I lose my head? Well, my sleeves may be green, but my lipstick's red. Jane Seymour, the only one he truly loved. Rude. When my son was newly born, I died. 
right, but I'm not what I seem, or am I? Stick around and you'll suddenly see more. Ich bin Anna of Cleves. When he saw my portrait, he was like, yeah. But I didn't look as good as I did in my pick. Funny how we all discussed that, but never Henry's little prick out your ears. I'm the Catherine who lost her head. For my promiscuity outside of wed. Lock up your husband's, lock up your son's key. Howard is here and the fun's begun. Five down, I'm the final wife. I saw him to the end of his life. Survivor Catherine Paul. I bet you wanna know how I got this far. I said, I bet you wanna know how we got this far. Hey, do you wanna know how we got this far? Welcome to the show, to the history mix. Switching up the flow as we add the prefix. Everybody knows that we used to be six wives. Get your hands up, get this part. So we are back. I do want to talk a little bit more about Six the Musical. I didn't want to do it when Father Sean was on just because it's one of those situations where the other person did not experience it and you're just talking about it. But I cannot more highly recommend seeing and experiencing that musical. I loved it. Claire loved it. I had only heard two songs from it prior to actually experiencing the musical. And I remember seeing the album, but it seemed unfinished. Like maybe there were only eight songs or something. I thought, well, I'll just wait until the whole thing is on. And Claire, I remember had listened to it too. And I said, are are there really only eight songs? She's like, I don't know. And then when we got our playbill and we're in the seats, we're looking and we're like 70 minute runtime. And so I'm a bit bummed about that. I mean, the experience and being in the seats and just waiting for it is amazing, but also you're paying hundreds of dollars potentially to see a Broadway musical and you want a long time. You know, I'm used to two and a half hours or so watching a show. And I will say that this theater, I don't know if it was, the theater did seem smaller potentially, but the bathroom lines were insane. And I ended up going in the men's bathroom because I thought, you know, I'd like to go. I don't know if I'll make it during the intermission. So might as well go now and then hold it and everything. And there was no intermission. So it didn't even matter, but I'm glad that I had to go to the bathroom. So where to even begin. I fully understand even once it it began, but definitely more so afterwards, why that show is 70 minutes because it is high energy from start to finish. Even though there are a couple ballads, the women are out there the entire time. There's one time I think they go off in order to maybe two in order to get some 
some props, some clothing props. And if each of the wives has their own special number, but if you are not the prime singer, you are behind that wife and you are, I should say queen, but uh, you are adding backup uh, with vocals, with movements and everything. So they're just on the entire time. And also the band is all female too. So it's just completely female, which is lovely. And gosh, yeah, all of the songs are really interesting there. Of course, I, for Zyze's radio hour, I let you have or experience, I guess, XYs, which is the title, the title song and where they begin and they end with it to a certain extent as well. There's a really weird song that's also amazing and fun called House of Holbein, which you just I think I'll put it at the end end of this episode because it's just so wacky and being in there and experience it was so crazy. And each of the wives in the playbill, they go through and very clever in how they do it. You know who the wife is, uh, whom she was played by. And, you know, what her skill set is or what her goals are, like some of them might be like skill set staying alive or someone's goal was to stay alive. And then it also says musical inspiration. So each of the wives is inspired by a contemporary singer. So Jane Seymour, for instance, who has a slower ballad, her musicality is influenced by Adele and Sia. And later on, potentially my favorite song is All You Want to Do, and that's by Katherine Howard. And she is, or her inspiration, or her musical inspiration is, there's someone else, but I know it's also Ariana Grande, and her look definitely also takes on that Ariana Grande as well. So, yeah, it's just great that there's this banter between them, you know, between songs, and then the songs themselves have double entendres. For the most part, it's pretty clean, but, you know, Claire and I were discussing, would you take your kid here? And I'm like, man, it's pretty close. It's kind of like cartoons that are made for kids, but there are adult innuendos and jokes that you can get. And so there's a lot of that for sure. So House of Holbein is really fun. Ex-Wives, of course, just starting off really hot. All You Want to Do, I really like it, but it was such a tonal shift because you're just high, high, high. I think it comes right after Anne of Cleves, and that one's <laughs> pretty peppy and like feminist because she's like, you know, I'm the queen of the castle. Get down, you dirty rascals. And then we have this one, Catherine Howard, so me too appropriate. And it's still, it's like high energy. Yeah, it's got that pop rock to it. And, oh man, it starts off, she's 13. Her first like sexual encounter is with this 23-year-old. And she thinks like, oh yeah, it's love. That doesn't work out. There's another one. She thought that was love, not going to work out. Henry VIII, you know, she's not too excited about it. And then there's another one. And yeah, this is a six- 650, I think, or seven minute song with four verses in it. And it just gets more and more intense, which so again, 70 minute show, this is why. And I even saw some of the singers sneak. I think she was one actually sneak some water before going on. And absolutely, you would need to do that because you've been singing the entire time. And now you've got this seven minute solo, but she gets to the final guy. And it was just this I guess, um, kind of a right-hand man to, to Henry. And uh, she feels there's, you know, no chemistry. It's legitimately friendship. And then he's like, you know, 
I want you basically. And she's like, I thought this was different. And so it just gets, oh, it gets worse and worse and worse. And then the movements themselves, the the other queens are touching her and grabbing her and it gets really violent and she's trying to pull away. It's really intense, complete tonal change. I felt uncomfortable about it, but I, I really love that song. I think it might be my favorite now, which originally I think I may have said that Catherine of Aragon was my my favorite song and, and singer, but just well worth it. Well worth it. I would definitely see it again. I've listened to the soundtrack multiple times, so highly recommend it. Happy news. I was trying to think about what the happy news, actually a couple of happy news is because it's taking me so long to record the second part. I think I said last episode that I applied to grad school and I just found out I got into grad school. So that was super exciting. I'm looking forward to what this journey in uh, is going to be like and challenges ahead. And then of course, what this journey will lead to in my final destination and finding that community that I really want to teach birthday just happened. I went skydiving for my birthday. I'm going to have to post the video, I think, on the Backroll the Oracle YouTube page so you can see it. But it was it was a lot of fun. There was certainly a moment that I was on the edge of the plane looking down to the abyss. And I didn't have long to do it because he's like, one, two, three. And then we went off. But I was pretty freaked out just for that moment. And, and I think the action immediately after jumping. But after that, just euphoric, calm. I don't know if that contradicts itself but yeah just a sense of euphoria and calm and not thinking about anything else like anything outside it I, I could have been cold I don't even know it was just this moment of being and existing about 60 seconds of free fall and then the shoot went off and then maybe three to five minutes of floating and he was showing me different places um, far off in the distance and, and around. And so that was that was great. I really enjoyed it. No regrets. My only regret, I guess I would say, is that I wish someone had gone with me, but I was trying so hard. And originally I was going to jump on a Friday and just people were working and couldn't get off. But then high winds caused my jump to be canceled. And then I rescheduled it right away for Saturday and, and did it then. So, oh man, crazy, crazy. Okay. So now I think that's it for the news. I would like to, let's see, how should I order this? Let's do listener emails. So listener emails. Mail I have two of them. One of them is from Ian Prime, aka Ian Miller. Unfortunately, he sent this to me a long, long ago, but I was going through my emails. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Ian. I'm so sorry. So anyways, here we go. Dear Stella, I've been catching up on the last few months of Backward Oracle, and it seems I missed a lot of episodes featuring a lot of Stephanie Brown, not just in the modern comics where James Tynion and Tom Taylor are featuring her leading up to the Backgirl's ongoing series, about which I'm extremely excited but also in the great Batgirl 26 and 28 and Birds of Prey 42, where you see Steph proving herself against the Shiva cultists, proving herself able to push herself incredibly hard while Cass is training and impress Black Canary. And you've also finished the Chuck Dixon era Birds of Prey. I'm still so pleased to have been invited to assist you in covering the wonderful Lazarus Pit arc. Definitely my favorite after the hunt for Oracle storyline. But I am very, very excited to see what happens when you finally hit the first Gail Simone run, especially given your extreme 
extremely insightful noticing of the parallels between Oracle's approach to Power Girl and Black Canary. I'm very curious if you think that Babs' approach is a negative action by her or a positive one. Do you think that Babs is more interested in what she can get by manipulating her fellow heroines who are in a bad spot, or if she intends to build them up to the best of their potential? And if you think there's a difference, given that there's some manipulation involved in both. I'd also love to know what you think your favorite non-Birds of Prey number eight issue or arc was during this four-year run. Looking forward to December when you'll be able to cover another Batgirls title and hope that it's much, much better than the one which we covered together last year. <laughs> Smiley face emoticon, yours, Ian Prime. Thank you for writing and Ian. See, I didn't forget about you. It just got lodged in notifications. So that's really interesting. So he's talking about when Barbara reached out to both Power Girl and uh, Dinah, I, I don't know, I did that to Kara and Dinah or Power Girl and Black Canary in order to say, hey, your life looks like it's a bit without direction. Why not? Why not come on board? And whether, yeah, that was manipulating or not. I think I think Barbara is the type of person who always has multiple reasons for her actions. And I think she thinking multiple steps ahead, potentially. So it's not, I mean, think of all probably the characters or heroes out there that may be directionless, but she looks at some of these really capable heroines. So for example, someone that may be directionless that Barbara did not reach out to necessarily would be Huntress, I think. Though it depends on the era, I guess. But you know, that that could have been somebody. But number one, Barbara doesn't want to deal with that woman. And number two, she doesn't really align, I think, ethically necessarily with Barbara's belief system. And I think maybe skill set not as uniquely talented or gifted as Black Canary and Power Girl are. Power Girl, of course, has the superhero skill set. And then Black Canary is such a skilled martial artist. And I guess that would primarily be <laughs> maybe what she may have gone for. And both of them have team experience too. They've been on teams, which I think is something else that Barbara would have looked at because if these women that she's looking for don't work well or don't play well with others, they're probably not going to take command well. And since Barbara's sort of the armchair leader, you have to be able to do that. So I think there are multiple reasons. I don't know if I would necessarily consider that manipulation, but it's it's going to serve her purpose. So I guess potentially, but I also think that Barbara is a woman that all women should be like, that is looking to bolster and support women that are going through a tough time and competition is not in the forefront of her brain. And she's not going to laugh at, you know, the detriment of others or, or where others are. So I think because she wants to support others, I think she probably did look at Power Girl and Black Canary and see that they're in a bad way and they are directionalists. And how can I reach out and help these women? I think to a certain extent, she probably could see herself getting along with them. 
because that's another part of just team dynamics, right? Whereas hunters, there's no way, no how. So I think, I, I, I guess it's kind of the the both and that you had there. There was a purpose to it. I think she saw several yards in the distance of how this could work for her, but she also wanted to support those women who were really having a tough time. At least that's what I see for Barbara. I think if it were like Amanda Waller, that woman is going to do something else entirely. She's not really for supporting others, period. And it's all about how can she benefit and who's the best team for what she needs to do. So I think if I were to look at that, and like that's the best way almost is to pick someone that's the polar opposite. And they're like, oh yeah, Barbara is doing this, I think. But she's not perfect. I think that she does have other goals. And as for your other question, which was about my favorite, I think if, you know, if I were to look through all of these tales, I would definitely say probably Hunt for Oracle, just because I had known, I had read that before. And I think it's just so monumental in Barbara's history, as well as Donna's, and then just bringing those two together. And then, you know, everything leading up to it. And then, of course, really breaking down that impersonal barrier and now creating this intimacy between them that leads them to such a strong relationship. So that would be my answer right there. Okay. Thanks Ian for writing in. And then also I reached out to Chuck or Chuck Dixon in regards to some of those questions that Sean and I were thinking about. So I asked him two questions. I said, what gave you the idea for the story? Well, I should say two subsets of questions. I always do that to Tom. What gave you the idea for the story? Have you had interest in Roman history or culture? Do you have a classics background? He said, no formal training. It's mostly a toy soldier fascination with the Roman Empire. Literally. See attached photo. Though I've read all of Tacitus and Plutarch and a lot of other writers, which right there, I appreciate your nerdyism. And I see all of his soldiers, which are a lot of fun. My second question was, who is the statue that Agrippina speaks to in her rooftop villa? Sean and I narrowed down the possibilities to Germanicus or Claudius, assuming this is Agrippina the Younger. And he said, it's been a while since I wrote that story, but my first impulse is to say it's Germanicus. And I thanked him for his time and his art. And he said, thank you. Cool questions. And then, of course, I forwarded that to Father Sean. So there you go. So thank you, Chuck, for (laughs) answering those questions. And that reminds me that I need to reach back out to him and see if he wants to come on and talk about his tenure tenure on Birds of Prey. Okay, so that's it for listener emails. Remember, you can always write in backrolloracle at gmail.com. It's been a bit of a dry spell, but here we are. Okay, so there is a Batgirls interview that DC Comics, I think specifically Alex Jaffe was the guy person who... Conducted it, and Alex speaks to Becky and uh, Michael, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. So I thought I would go through this in case you hadn't seen it. So let's see here. The concept of an all Batgirl series seems like an obvious home run. It's something that a lot of fans have been asking about for years now. Why is now finally the time for Batgirls? Cloonan says, you know, I've heard it said once that you can't rush a miracle. I think sometimes things take time to happen. We were very happy to be asked. Conrad says, I think publishers and editors are used to hearing people say, oh, I'd love to see a series of something. And then it'll happen and people don't show up for it. So I think it's getting harder now for fans to say, hey, I'd really like this thing. And then to actually see it happen in a reasonable amount of time. But I do think the principal actors within Backrolls has shown that they have shown that they have a pretty strong fan base and putting them together and watching them interact with each other has been really exciting for readers and certainly for us. 
How did you both first fall in love with Babs and Stephen Cass? Conrad says years ago as a reader, just picking up various Gotham books, I would be excited anytime they'd show up. My relationship with the characters is just like any reader out there, you know? <laughs> Becky says that's really good. And uh, Conrad says, I give your answer. There's more. I feel like there's other stuff. With the comics, it was probably Gail Simone's run that got her hooked on the character. Batgirl, oh, sorry, Batman the Animated Series. And the next question is talking about the relationship between Cass and Steph being at the heart of the book. And it's not really been explored much since Cass's uh, 2000 series that we've been doing. And how has it changed in the last 20 years? How did Cass and Steph become so close? Conrad says some of that is going to be revealed as we share our story and our version of these characters. One thing that we came into this book with was we want to show healthy relationships. We wanted there to be real dynamics there. We wanted there to be some tension and drama, but in reality, in my relationships with the people that I love and care about, I don't ever punch them ever. <laughs> okay. That would never be a thing that I would think to do. So we wanted to do that. We wanted to show a happy relationship. One of the points that I always make is the movie Step Brothers. I always thought that the best parts in Step Brothers were when the two main characters were getting along rather than when they were fighting. The fight scenes were neat and fun but I felt like that movie had its funniest moments when they were getting along. So we want to do a story about people getting along. Wow. Within the confines of superhero where yes, there's going to be a lot of punching and kicking, but we're going to try to direct it the right way. And furthermore, it's about female characters. And I think there's something to be said for female characters on a page, getting along rather than being catty and weird with each other, not necessarily groundbreaking stuff by any means in regards to showing healthy female relationships. But I think comics have room to grow in that department. And Clunin says it's definitely a comic about friendship and we're going to explore all the role relationships. That's one of the things we want to focus on in this book. Next question is, how do you see yourselves exploring Steph here as a character in her own right? Clooney says, it's great when you get to write a character who is very well-defined, but with Steph, there's still so much to do with her and so much story to tell. It's so much fun to think where we're going to put her in the future and the things she's going to learn. I love having a character with that much potential. Uh, this is almost a betrayal, I would say, since didn't Steph already do this multiple times, but here we go. Not to say that they don't all have potential, but they're also developed. I feel like Stephanie, it's a lot of fun to think about her. Conrad says, I think it's easy to compare her and look in contrast. It's easy to say Cass is probably a better fighter or, you know, Baz is probably better at doing detective type things. And part of the reason we can say these things is because these are central motifs of these characters. With Steph, there's room to be really dynamic with her. We know we love her. We know that she's pretty darn good at many things, but we've got a real opportunity here with this series to show that these are the things that Steph does best. These are her singular central motifs. And these are the things that moving forward, everyone around her will be measured against. Speaking of Cass and Steph's previous individual Batgirl runs, can we expect to run into any friends or enemies from their first Batgirl tenures here? And what about new faces? Conrad says, I say yes to both of these. For us as fans, there are definitely faces that we want to see again. Also, I see what people are saying. And sometimes it feels good when people say, oh, I'd love to see this character again, when we've already got pages in the can with this character. As far as new characters, we can't get away from new characters. That's part of what's neat and dynamic about Gotham is the endless potential of there being new strange characters character showing up. Clooney says we're coming in right off of the heels of Fear State. So it's really cool to take what they've done there, the whole magistrate stuff and Simon Sane, and really dig into characters that have come out of this very contemporary Gotham. But also, of course, we want to use the classics. There's room for all of it. And Conrad says, maybe some characters that some people have forgotten about, some characters that have shown up in past Batgirl comics that really meant stuff to us. So I, I don't want to spoil but there are characters who are really going to delight people when they show up on the pages. I'm hoping for some deep cuts. 
do, do, do. Oh, what is this? This is garbage. There's a sense to all three of these Batgirls that each of them adopted the bat symbol on their own accord, not waiting for Batman's permission or endorsement. How is the mantle of Batgirl different from Batman or even Robin? Conrad. Batman's a person who came up with this bizarre idea and naturally he's taken on Robin and it's kind of a thing that just continues to bloom. And as it blooms, there are offshoots of the same family tree. So where the original Robin may be like the son, we're now getting into territory where if we have our druthers, we'll be getting into like the weird second cousins and stuff. There are Batgirls that are very connected to Batman and then there are ones that aren't so connected to him. Clunan says, yeah, they're also like a sisterhood, you know, there is that element to it. I think that they're doing it on their own. It connects them, all these characters. They've all been characters other than Batgirl. They've had other identities, but at the same time, you're always going to be Batgirl first. You might be a spoiler, but you're also going to be a Batgirl. And the same with Oracle. Oracle is also such a big part of Babs' identity, but she's also Batgirl. I think it's not the sort of thing that you shrug off. You become one and then you just are one. Okay, Barbara, here we go. How do you plan to address Barbara's relationship with mobility and disability in back rolls? Clunin, we are addressing it, I think, pretty head on. Right now, Barbara has a chip in her back that allows her to walk again. But in our book, she has off days. She's got bad days. So we'll see her use a cane. She A cane? She does use a wheelchair occasionally. She's got days when she's just spending some time under her desk, rearranging all the cables, you know, and I think anyone would want to spend the rest of the day sitting down. So I think it's just natural. We don't make a huge deal of it because it's such a big part of her character and her history. It's not like we want to beat the readers over the head with this idea, but at the same time, we want to show that's still part of her character. She is still disabled, even if she doesn't always look like it all the time. She can walk around, but it's still part of her. Conrad says, and we love that she's become an icon for this community. It's a community that we really want to serve. We're going to do so to our greatest ability without necessarily creating a different character entirely in our book. We can't have her running and jumping through, I don't know, ventilation shafts or whatever in one book. And then in our book, have her be a representation of someone with different mobility skills. It's just a continuity issue. That said, I've got a past in working with people who have mobility challenges. And like Becky said, it doesn't always present in a way that becomes central to a character. And it shouldn't be. It should be that the central thing going on here is her awesome character and her great personality. And then if we can also show her physical norm is different from maybe your physical norm, my physical norm, then great. And if it's something that people can identify with and feel empowered by, we would love that. And then Clunin finishes. Uh, yeah, and that's what we're here to do. When we first got asked to work on Batgirls, one of the things we pushed for was, hey, we want to show Babs in a chair again, but she's just going to have some days where she needs to use it. You know, it's such an integral part of her. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so as long as we're here celebrating Batgirls, I want to bring up someone we sometimes forget. There's one person to use the Batgirl name before Barbara, a girl by the name of Betty Kane. I also call her Bet. You got any respect for the OG? <laughs> I disagree with you, Alex, mainly because that was a bad dash girl. Also, isn't Bet still Firebird? So I'm confused about that. But anyways, Conrad says the book's called Backrolls, you know, it's just called Backrolls, which means the door is there. And when I see a door, I'm a curious person. I'm going to open that door and see what comes through. So I suspect um, we aren't going to spoil anything, but the book's called Backrolls. <laughs> Great political answer, Michael W. Conrad. And then Coonan says there's also characters out there who could possibly be a Backroll and not have been one yet. So we've got ideas. We've got plans. This right now is the very start of things. And if people like it and it goes well, which I hope people do and I hope it does, you'll see there's a lot more. And that's a call out right to the fans that we do absolutely need to buy it and support this so that it continues because we've been clamoring for it for years. 
Ugh, okay. So there you go. News as you have it. Okay. So now we're going to get into the quickies and just three issues. Today, I did look at rather skim urban legends, but Babs was in one panel. It just wasn't worth it. So we're going to start with Batman 116, Fear State Part 3, writer James Tiny IV, artist George Jimenez, and colorist Tomu Mori. I don't know why I even did that. She doesn't appear in the main story, but of course, we've got the Batgirls Part 2 backup, which is called Set It Off. Writers Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, artist George Corona, and color Sarah Stern. With the Batcoms unreliable, Oracle has instructed the Batgirls to stay in the clock tower while she and Nightwing investigate who's behind the Oracle network hacks. But with the Magistrate's forces instructed to attack the clock tower, will the Batgirls make it out before it's too late? Okay, here we go. I was just going to say about that one guy. Magistrate 01, Peacemaker 01, that I feel like his villain design is pretty cool or antagonist design. Maybe he's not specifically one, but with the burning and everything. So just some comments here. Batgirls is now known as a terrorist cell, which I thought was pretty interesting. Some great quotes. I don't know if it's here or not. Yeah. So the terrorist cell known as the Batgirl. So they really stepped it up, I guess. Oh, this is what it is. I really love this. Batgirls never surrender, right? They can tell there's some bad stuff going on. They're clearly outmatched and outgunned just by sheer numbers and firepower. But Cass is all about that. Batgirls never give up. There was something or surrender. There was something I did notice that Cass has the same what what would be the cadence of speaking or similar, I should say, not the same that we've seen in her title in the 2000s. But if you go over to Nightwing, which of course I will, she speaks pretty flawlessly. And that's something that I wish would be more consistent, but you can see her taking some pauses. Okay. What else do we have here? Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure. Let's see. There's this woman, <laughs> Grace O'Halloran. O'Halloran. Yeah. Dramatic on and off the camera, I have to say. And <laughs> there's this one panel where there, <laughs> it's Grace. Uh, seems like a lot of work. I'm not, I felt like she meant see, seems like a piece of work, a lot of work. I'm not sure. And I guess she's commenting on Grace that she's a bit dramatic and high maintenance. But I have a sense because I think Grace pops up in the third part as well, that this woman is going to be a minor character. And I guess maybe our go-to newswoman in the Batgirls title. And she's just so much. She's extra, as they say, that I think it, she will be a comical side character. A, a dramatic April O'Neil, maybe. I like how in this scene, they're up at the rooftop and then they tra- change into civvies to, to get out of there. Certainly pulling a Spider-Man, I feel like, and changing clothing and having their clothing in a bag with them and then having to climb down and everything. I, overall, I really liked this point. And I really, these three parts, right? Because leading up to it, you've had mostly Barbara's perspective and then other people's, but just really creating this intimate space, I think, between Cass and Steph and us as the audience, I thought was really great and seeing what they've been getting into. And of course, the clock tower situation, how did they get out of that? As well as 
what's it been like to be on the run from the magistrates and and on ground level because Barbara and Dick have been off doing something and and Bruce has been off doing other stuff. So it's yeah, it's just been really fun to see that. And then overall, yeah, the last page, I really love this, that, you know, these two girls, they've got to come up with a plan and it's hard and stressful, but they're together and Cass hugging step at the end and saying, we're still the flipping back roles. Always we'll figure it out. So I, I, yeah, I think that interview, you know, asked the question about this relationship and I I feel like we've already seen it. So it's not like Clunin and Conrad are inventing this relationship but i think they're just further developing what we've seen before and i think also giving us nostalgic feels from the steph and in casts way back when you know when they were training together and whatever that was casts that back old maybe 28 or something like that so as we see that i think that'll be a lot of fun and i know that i don't have the cover up they showed all the variants for i think there are four different variants from the first issue of batgirls and one of them donovan had commented you know the this one is really shipperific because i think they're like reaching out to each other as they're swinging through the air and you know (laughs) potentially that i don't know what i would think i i have nothing against it if they do but It's also the trap that I don't like. And I think I've spoken of this trap before that I'm all about shipping and romantic shipping as well, as well as platonic shipping. But one of the reasons why Babs and Dinah erotic or romantic shipping gets my goat is because I feel like just because two women are friends, some people assume that there are, there's got to be something more to it. And, and there's that, it's just a lot of pressure and it's, Ugh, I feel like it's less romance and more like outside titillation of like, oh, see, those two girls are really close. They must have some sort of eroticism going on. And so that's why I don't like it. That why, why, why couldn't they just be, yeah, strong female friends? But I guess we'll see what happens. Okay, so next up is Nightwing 86. Nightwing, of course, is a fan favorite of this host. So this is... Fear State Part 3, writer Tom Taylor, artist Robbie Rodriguez, and colorist Adriana Lucas. Nightwing and Babs have fought through the fear-stricken Gotham streets, but now their fight takes them to the skies above Gotham with the Batgirls and Tim Drake, in parentheses Robin as if we don't know, in tow. Now aboard the Magistrate Skybase 01, they have made it their mission to bring the airborne Leviathan down, prevent Sears disinformation from being broadcast, and save the innocents aboard. But in this paranoia-stricken city, not everyone is who they seem. Okay, so of course, remember that the previous Batgirl had ended with the clock tower exploding and everyone thinks that Steph and Cass are dead and we know better because we've watched, but here we are. And so they go right to the rubble and luckily Steph and Cass call Oracle and everything, everything is good and and they're all safe. There is something funny where uh, Steph actually calls Babs out for using the real names on the radio and that's absolutely correct. You probably shouldn't do that, no matter what the state of crisis is in Gotham. But, Bar- you know, I kind of excuse Barbara because she was in a state and she's very nervous that her mentees were dead. 
And also, if you notice, Stephanie Brown has a Burnside College hoodie on, which I thought was fun as well. When they all reunite, there's some joint hugging, which I love very much. Let's see here. What else is there? Which, you know, just bat family reunited love. Love. I This is great. <laughs> this page I love so much. So Dick is pointing to the sky base that they need to go up there. And Tim is saying, okay, how are we getting up there? Oh, unless you two want to do this alone. And of course, Steph and Cass haven't been around to know what's going on here or what the change in relationship status is. They haven't been on Facebook, aka Meta recently. So Steph says, why would they want to be alone? And Tim says they kissed. And Steph basically is me like, finally. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And Dick says, we're launching an attack on a hostile force. You think we want to be alone for that? And Tim says, you know, I don't know what you find romantic. Babs is face palming. Can we please focus up? And then Cass says, good kiss. Babs says, yeah, it was good. And then Cass says, good. Now focus up. So that whole page was marvelous. And I appreciate it, obviously, as a Dick and Babs shipper. Okay. They have this interesting plan where, of course, they're going to get some suits. Oh, very similar to Star Wars, right? Where they have to get some suits to infiltrate the sky base. And you have Steph and Tim being the people, <laughs> I guess, that act as bait. And then all of a sudden, they um, all mug the people inside of the suits. And so the irony, obviously, is that this is what the Bat family would be cracking down on, you know, mugging. But when I saw Steph and Tim teaming up, you know what I thought? Does, does Steph know about Tim's relationship change or have they talked about that? I'm not sure. Who knows? I wonder what that would be like. I mean, they're, this is, they're professional, so they're working well together. But because... Last I knew before the most recent thing, they were in a pretty serious relationship. I wonder what that would be like. Okay, so here we are. They're suiting up. And I remember there was a fun, this one. I really like this splash page. This is page 14, at least on mine. And I guess you can't necessarily call it a splash page, but it is a full page image of the Bat Family helmet list because Of course, they're fighting others that look like them. So we don't want to confuse the Bat family from the bad guys and just all working together. So Seer, of course, is taunting them. And if you look, this is page 16 on the top right. That is Seer right there. And so it's really interesting that Seer was up with the kids in the same room as the kids. And it just begs the question as to how she was able to speak to the Bat family without the other kids wondering what was going on. And it couldn't have been pre-recorded. I'm looking at you. I know how what you did last summer TV show. It couldn't have been pre-recorded because all of this was in reaction to the things that Dick and and Barbara were saying and, and the Bat family were doing and things like that. So I'm not sure about that. I don't know who that particular person is. I'm going to call her a kid, and I think it's a her. I'm going to call her a kid, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. She kind of reminds me of. Well, it does say she can't hide from us. Kind of reminds me, I think the character's name was the general who was an antagonist in Tim Drake's history. But it's interesting. Golly, just think about Babs and her nemesis being like 
10 to 15 years her junior and what that would mean. That's That changes a dynamic, like a villain hero dynamic. I'm going to have to think about that. It works if it's for, because I assume she's going to be the first antagonist for, or the main one for the Batgirls title. So it works because she's probably comparable to their age, but really she's gone after Oracle and that seems to be her mark. So, hmm, Barbara versus a child just seems so strange. Okay, well. I'll consider that. If you have any thoughts on whether this is an interesting dynamic or whether, I don't know, not inappropriate, but what that means for Barbara that her nemesis is a child, let me know right in the back row of the Oracle at gmail.com. I love this as I scroll back that Barbara was the one to hack the sky base and then Nightwing was the one to crash it. So a team through and through. And then also, I think, playing their parts and how it affected them and also them being the ones to bring it down because, you know, their family has been in duress and being attacked by this. Then we have these two having some funsies. And my first question is, why has Babs removed her cowl? <laughs> I mean, anyone could potentially, I mean, imagine a ferry boat just rolling by or floating by, as it were, and seeing Nightwing with his cowl on and then Barbara right there. Who even knows? But Babs is all about taking, taking Seer down. So we'll see what happens because it's going to be continued in Batgirls number one. And then the final thing that we are looking at is Batman 117. And this is Fear State finale. Oh, and we do see Barbara at least arrive with the gang here. I wasn't really going to talk about this at all. But, oh, this makes more sense now. I read them out of order. I went 16-17 and then did Nightwing. But now it makes sense why they have these particular suits and everything. But... I am going to, oh, there's a shipper. I forgot about that. Yeah, so Harley and Poison Ivy. Oh, here we go. I think this was kind of what I was talking about. I don't, he reminds me of like Michael Myers mixed with Jason and just the burning and everything. I mean, he's, he looks very, this is Peacemaker 01. Sorry for those not seen, but he just seems so formidable and the, the burn marks add very much to that. Okay. Oh, happiness. Look at that family all together. Oh, Kate. And then add in some other people's like the Signal and Harley. I like that Harley's kind of part of the Bat family now. Okay, here we go with the Batgirls part three of three. Can't hardly wait. Hashtag Tom Panarese's favorite movie, I think. Writers Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, artist George Corona, and color Sarah Stern. After what happened in the Magistrate Sky Bay 01, nowhere is safe, and the Batgirls hide out in a hotel room until Babs arrives, offering a plan for their future. Seer, the anti-Oracle, is revealed here. Technically, she was revealed in Nightwing, but we'll go with that. And who they are will make you question everything you see moving forward in Gotham. Um, So should I know who Seer is? Because I don't know. So... Oh, yeah, the, the Grace person right here. I ask it right here. Is this Grace person going to be a minor character in Batgirls? I hope so. I mean, this woman just blurts things out and she's already live. So 
be really interesting. It's pretty fun. So they're in this hotel called the homes and I don't know who's doing the, the stars rating, but maybe they're just checking in to see how it is, but it keeps going down and down and down. So day two, it's 1.75. I think it just keeps going on. There was a comment at one point, someone threw a, I think it was like a TV out of the window. So it, that that's a fun little strain that is going through. The back girls are going to be roommates, which is super exciting. Barbara comes in to let them know that she's looking for a place and she's found it. Until then, of course, Barbara actually leaves Steph. Is this the one? Yeah, she's leaving them with uh, each other, Steph and Cass, to fend for themselves in this dingy room. And then she's going to go crash with Dick, which (laughs) they seem like animals. This seems like a really problematic area. It is really dingy and it's very small. It's like living in a studio apartment with two people and they can't even leave. So that's problematic. She does come back and say that it smells pretty bad. Um, I don't want to think what you've been doing. And then she just leaves them to it and goes off on her own, which both is terrible of her, but makes me laugh. I mean, why does she? She's an adult. She doesn't need to suffer with those kids. The comments on the Holmes Hotel are pretty funny, as I said. This was weird because it's, oh gosh, the homes, one star, literal hell, and then a half a star, I hate it here. It's interesting because you'd think these people would leave, but sometimes it is what it is and you just got to stick it out. What's interesting, oh yeah, there it is. The next morning, someone threw a TV out the window. The star went up. That was a one star. So Seer, of course, appears to them. So she is able to pretty powerful, man. I can't wait to see more about this person and how they're able to do what they do, but able to basically pop in wherever. And that's why the TV gets thrown out of the window. So Bab sees them and I don't know, 12 hours pass, maybe because it says it's the next morning. But she's making it seem like it's even worse. Like what happened here? Steph and Cass seem like they're not lethargic, probably, but like delusional. Like what's happened? You know, we haven't seen the light in days, but it's only been 12 hours. So I I don't know why it had gotten so bad within half a day. But here we are. I like that Barbara is wearing a Nightwing sweat jacket. and. Of course, she's got the keys. It's time to go. I don't, I feel really sad for the housekeeping who has to clean all that stuff up, but maybe they don't have housekeeping there. And then they're going, they're going to the hill. And I should say that the hill throughout this entire story here, this particular part, there have been a bunch of victims. So I think not only are we going to have the seer who probably whoever she is or they are. I don't even know. I think that'll be like the big, big bad that'll be across arcs maybe or several issues. And then I think in the beginning, we'll be trying to track down who is the killer in the hill or at the hill. And of course, Barbara would (laughs) moving day. Of course, Barbara would pick the worst place to to go, like the highest crime. Like, hey, we can clean it up, can't we? So there you go. So. After all that, that is the lead up into Bad Girls. So I said, I think initially that I couldn't really fully review or give a grade on just one piece. I wanted to see how it all worked together. And to a certain extent, those three parts were pretty disparate. 
I think the first one, right, was when Cass was on the run and then Steph pops up. And then the second one is about the clock tower and then being on the run. And then the third one, they're all holed up in this hotel room. And if you think about it, not a lot has actually happened. It's could almost make it. Well, I guess it was a backup, right? So you could put them all together to make an issue, but it it really was just set up. So I feel like if I were to grade it, it would probably be rather low if only because not much has happened. I think you get a sense again of the relationships between the primary three back girls that we're going to be talking about. It gives us exposition for where we're going to land in back rolls, number one. And then it fills in the gap, of course, with what's happening throughout Fear State and where these ladies are. So I don't know, six or seven. I mean, it's really unfair because it it wasn't a cohesive story. And I don't know that it was necessarily intended to be. It had to bridge the gap between different things going on in Fear State and other books. So, But this one was a really funny one that I would probably give an eight or nine out of 10 dismal hotels, but yeah, maybe a six or a seven overall. So, Ooh, next month, Batgirls number one. Okay. On to my anime watch list. I did watch two anime. First, I watched Cowboy Bebop, the 1998 series, which is 26 episodes. In the year 2071, humanity has colonized several of the planets and moons of the solar system, leaving the now uninhabitable surface of planet Earth behind. The inter-solar system police attempts to keep peace in the galaxy, aided in part by outlaw bounty hunters referred to as cowboys. The rag team aboard the spaceship Bebop are two such individuals. Mellow and carefree Spike Spiegel is balanced by his boisterous, pragmatic partner, Jet black as the pair makes a living chasing bounties and collecting rewards thrown off course by the addition of new members that they meet in the travels ein a genetically engineered highly intelligent welsh corgi femme fatale faye valentine an enigmatic trickster with memory loss and the strange computer whiz kid edward wong aka radical edward my favorite the crew embarks on thrilling adventures that unravel each member's dark and mysterious past little by little who highly recommend that was my first Sorry, that was my second watch, and I ended up watching it all with Donovan, which was a lot of fun. And then we watched the live action, which I do not recommend. Don't do it. Do not do it. Do not waste your time. Just watch the original there. And then I watched, and I'm so sad it's over now, Fruits Basket, the final, and it literally just came out, 2021, 13 episodes. Hundreds of years ago, the Chinese Zodiac spirits and their gods swore to stay together eternally. United by this promise, the possessed members of the Soma family shall always return to each other under any circumstances. Yet when these bonds shackle them from freedom, it becomes an undesirable burden, a curse. As head of the clan, Akito is convinced that he shares a special connection with the other Somas while he desperately clings to this fantasy the rest of the family remains isolated and suppressed by the fear of punishment i'm gonna have to spoil to say why i'm smiling this way toru honda who has grown attached to the somas is determined to break the chains that bind them her companionship with the family and her friends encourages her to move forward with lifting the curse However, due to confounding revelations, she struggles to find the tenacity to continue her endeavors. With time slowly withering away, Toru contends with an uncertain future in hopes of reaching the tranquility that may lie beyond all this commotion. And it got really dark, I think, if you remember several episodes before with season two. 
it really took a turn in, in at the end of season one, I guess I would say with Kyo and his transformation and then we're finding out about it. And then second season was really dark, especially with Akito and what he, she was doing. And then this one starts to level out and, and has promise, but you're wondering are Tor- Toru and Kyo going to get together uh, because she really wants to end the curse for his benefit and everything. And they finally come together and, and admit their love for one another. And it's more, well, Toru admits her love for kind of for Kyo. And then Kyo is like, you idiot. Why, why would you love me? And so he's got to reconcile with that. And then meanwhile, Akito, the family head. Here's the big spoiler. You should fast forward maybe a couple minutes if you don't want to hear this. But Akito is actually a woman. And the way she acts, oh my gosh. So it makes sense. Some of the stuff she does with the male Soma family, like kind of question like are uh, she how many how many of them does she have sex with but all she is a terrible human being towards the females and there's i guess this understanding that because her mother is so terrible to her basically she's got lots of trauma towards women though you you'd think it'd be like towards matriarchal women but it's just all women and she does terrible things like throw them out of a window or scratch their face with her nails um at one point she stabs someone in the back that was a man but she felt like she was betrayed and then all this stuff she complains about like you you know you don't know how much pain i'm going through as she's stabbing someone and i have to say that if anyone were a grade a b word it would be this person and towards the end there's some reconciliation uh toru is just a better person than i am she's really able to reach out to akito and and turn that around and and give her love and compassion and companionship and and to a certain extent and isuza who who whom whom was thrown out of a window who was thrown out of a window is like i don't know how you guys can move on like i can't do that and i'm like absolutely sister so (laughs) toru is just above and beyond but yeah to a certain extent i'm just like wow forgiveness for this person's got to be really difficult that would be real 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 stretch and you know how i strive towards compassion and empathy and forgiveness and grace but you have to witness everything that Akito did and be like, Ooh, and I, you know, everyone, everyone deserves it. Right. The grace and everything, but it's just, you gotta, I would have to work real hard. I'd be on Isuzu, like for sure, girl, I don't know if I can do it, but I love fruits basket. I really love the, just the animation style. I think for this revivified version, I like a bit more than the older one, but it might be maybe my top five anime. I'd have to think about that. So definitely Uran, which shout out to my soulmate, my platonic soulmate, Donovan, for getting me this for my birthday and Uran host club, Uran high, high school host club sweatshirt and made Sama and fruits basket, probably top five. And then I'd have to think because there are some that have really stuck with me that, I would probably also have to say, but I highly recommend Fruits Basket. And I watched the dub because I liked how it had the originals in there. And OTP for sure is Kyo and Toru. I'd like to find a shirt with them on it. I'll have to look. 
Okay. So what are you wearing? I kind of did that. And then my last thing is literature recommendations. I'm pretty sure that The Lost Apothecary was what I last spoke of on the previous episode. I will say that I've been reading lots of Amazing Spider-Man by Nick Spencer. I think I've read 12 volumes. So I highly recommend all of those. I read The Things We Cannot Say by Kelly Rimmer. Technically, I listened to it. Wait. Yes, it was an audiobook. That's yes, that is what I listened to on the way to driving up to Jersey. In 1942, Europe remains in the relentless grip of war just beyond the tents of the Russian refugee camp she calls home. A young woman speaks her wedding vows. It's a decision that will alter her destiny, and it's a lie that will remain buried until the next century. Since she was nine years old, Alina Diziak knew she would. Re- Knew she would marry her best friend, Tomas. Now 15 and engaged, Alina is, I think it was Alina, is unconcerned by reports of Nazi soldiers at the Polish border, believing her neighbors that they pose no real threat and dreams instead of the day Tomas returns from college in Warsaw so they can be married. But little by little, injustice by brutal injustice, the Nazi occupation takes hold and Alina's tiny rural village, its families, are divided by fear and hate. Then, as the fabric of their lives is slowly picked apart, Tomas disappears. Where Alina used to measure time between visits from her beloved... (gasps) Now she measures the spaces between hope and despair, waiting for word from Tomas and avoiding the attentions of the soldiers who patrol her parents' farm. But for now, even deafening silence is preferable to grief. Slipping between, not, yeah, I know this synopsis did not even talk about the modern, but anyways, the frenetic pace of modern life. Yeah, so the modern part, I can't believe they didn't do that, is um, Alina's granddaughter and finding out or going on this journey because Alina in the present day ends up having, I believe it was a stroke. And so she wants to go back to Poland, but she really can. And so she wants her granddaughter to go there and and find Tomas. And there's like all this confusion that I don't want to spoil. And then meanwhile, Alina's granddaughter, whose name now I can't remember. I can't believe they didn't put this in the synopsis has a son who is on the autism spectrum. And so there's uh, some good, I think, portrayal there. And yeah, lots of conflict though, like between the father and how he's relating to the son between that, that mother and her mother, which would be the daughter of Alina. And meanwhile, you find out what has happened to Tomas because they think, well, Tomas is the grandfather. He died a couple months ago, I think like six months or something. And you find out that that's actually not true and and more about what went on. So I had hopes as we were going on, like, oh, the love survived. And then I was betrayed. Okay. I did reread The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stig Larson. I feel like I've talked about this before, so I don't need to go through it again. Uh, I would say caution because some major and disturbing sexual violence. So if that's not something... I was going to say that you like, if that's not something that you will be able to handle, let's just say that I don't think you should read it, but you could potentially, if you're able to withstand, maybe people talking about it, then you should listen to the next episode of should be December, the December episode of required reading where I lead that discussion. Okay. I then read Will of Dark Hollow, which ended that it was just a duology and it made me really sad. So let's see here. Uh, and this is by Robert Beatty and still Serafina is, is I prefer her, but 
The Great Smoky Mountains, 1901. Willa and her clan are the last of the Farron, an ancient race of forest people who have lived in the mountains for as long as the trees have grown there. But as crews of newly arrived humans start cutting down great swaths of the forest she loves, Willa is helpless to stop them. How can she fight the destroyers of the forest and their powerful machines? When Willa discovers a mysterious dark hollow filled with strange and beautiful creatures, she comes to realize that it contains a terrifying force. Is unleashing these dangerous spirits the key to stopping the loggers? Willa must find a way to save the people and animals she loves and take a stand against an all-consuming darkness that threatens to destroy the world. So not only fantasy, but I think also some conservationist topics as well, which I appreciate because we are called to be caretakers of creation. Oh, geez. Oh, I better not have. Okay. Whew. I thought I gave this next one a high rating. This is Mrs. Rochester's Ghost by Lindsay Marcotte. I don't recommend it, but I'll read about it anyways to you. Jane has lost everything, job, mother, relationship, even her home. A friend calls to offer an unusual deal, a cottage above the crashing surf of Big Sur on the estate of his employer, Evan Rochester. In return, Jane will tutor his teenage daughter. She accepts. But nothing is quite as it seems at the Rochester estate. Though he's been accused of murdering his glamorous and troubled wife, Evan Rochester insists she drowned herself. Jane is skeptical, but she still finds herself falling for the brilliant and secretive entrepreneur and growing closer to his daughter. And yet, her deepening feelings for Evan can't disguise dark suspicions aroused when a ghostly presence repeatedly appears in the night's mist and fog. Jane embarks on an intense search for answers and uncovers evidence that soon puts Evan's innocence into question. She's determined to discover what really happened that fateful night, but what will the truth cost her? If you want to know my real thoughts on this, folks, see, listen to uh, Dear Reader, Episode 3. Because I have it out with that. And then the final thing that I read, I just finished it today, was a play that I got from the Drama Bookshop. And I uh, also happy to, so the Drama, drama Bookshop had been around for a really long time in Midtown and basically like down the street from Midtown Comics. And then I think it just got into some financial troubles and had to close up. And then a bunch of people came together, kind of led by Lynn manuel Miranda to be like, we need to have this still. And so they restored it. Re, I don't know, reincarnated it, but it's in a different location. It's a very cool sculpture up top that also it's, it's a bunch of hanging books basically in plays that goes through in chronological time, I believe um, just like fiction and, and storytelling and everything. But I've had this card, this punch card for the longest time, basically since I first went, I don't know, Golly, maybe 2012. That seems even too late. I at least 10 years. And I had been slowly accumulating things. And so I bought two plays. And then I basically had enough for a free play. So I got this free play. So this is in the inheritance part one by Matthew Lopez. And I'll read what the back of the play says. It says, decades after the height of the AIDS epidemic, the inheritance tells the story of three generations of gay men in New York City attempting to forge a future for themselves amid a turbulent and changing America. Eric Glass is a political activist engaged to his writer boyfriend, Toby Darling. When two strangers enter their lives, an older man and a younger one, their futures suddenly become uncertain as they begin to chart divergent paths. Inspired by E.M. Forster's masterpiece, Howard's End, which... E.M. is actually a character in here called Morgan. The Inheritance is an epic examination of survival, healing, class divide, and what it means to call a place home. I really enjoyed this. It was, for me, it was tough in the beginning. And I'd probably, if I reread it, I think it would go uh, better. But there are all these, it's crazy. It's like 
there are all these young men that's like young men, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I think. And they're all having discussions about storytelling and Morgan is there. And then they're like, let's tell a story. And then the story's going on, but Morgan will pop in. And then the young men will also be in there while the people actually in the story are, are living. It's, it's kind of crazy. So in the beginning it was hard, but then once it starts going, I'm like, okay, I'm tracking. And I also, you have to have to become comfortable with the characters. So you're not constantly like looking back and like, who is Toby again? And it's interesting how there's direction, like about speed that it should seem, if it seems like you're going too fast, that's probably right. And that it just needs to, to pick up, which I forgot to look because I remember the writer said part one is when Walter shows up until then the play has got to move briskly. Yeah. Some of these speeches are pretty long, but there are some really good speeches too. just about, I don't know what, maybe what we owe well what has has the previous generations done for us and given us what have we learned from them and then how can we also do that for for the younger ones and this is modern times too so there's a scene that they're watching the well they're talking about you know what the future of america is going to be like you know when hillary wins and then there's a whole scene about all the returns coming in and then you know the result of all that and and everything so it's really well, obviously contemporary, but I think um, poignant because we're living in that particular time now. There's, oh man, one of the probably saddest moments, but also really emotionally impactful is it just going through and, and saying all these men's names um, and that they're dead because, you know, the or are sick or they've got, you know, something else going on because of AIDS and everything and just going through and like, this is what it was like back then. So there is a part two. I'd have to see what that was about. I remember reading the back of it, but it wouldn't have made sense to me because I hadn't read part one. But I do recommend this. I thought that it was really good. So I think that's it. So, okay. Remember, you can send any question, questions or comments to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com. Relevant is what I was looking for. This is very relevant. Okay, there you go. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backrolltheoracle. And subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version, as you've seen, with its flaws, but maybe not next time if I have a new computer. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to my high comics for sponsoring back for the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast next time. It's my anniversary special, which is exciting. And I'm hopeful, hopeful that it is my chief Tata correspondent, Professor Carolyn Coca, joining me as we talk some, I want to bring her into the pain known as, what was it? DC first, DC comics first. Backroll and Joker, which remember I attempted to, but just couldn't handle it at that moment. And then, of course, Backroll is number one. So some pain and some beauty, so the grotesque and the beautiful, like O'Connor. Okay, I think that's it. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? Welcome to the house. To the house of Holbein.